Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History, Herstory, and True History, Herstory of Nasara. Infinite blessings to all of you. We have a very special meditation planned for today. I have begun working individually, and I'm adapting. I got permission from Mother Mary to adapt what I did with one of my clients yesterday um, into a meditation to activate everyone. So we're going to work with Mother Mary. Her feast day of the Immaculate Conception was the 8th. And so I've been working with her all week long. And, of course, Mary serves with Archangel Raphael on the ray of healing, truth, wholeness, balance, and harmony. So we're going to work with those concepts. So I'm going to ask you to go into your heart center as we begin with our opening meditation. So take a nice deep breath. Setting aside the rest of the world at this moment as we go within, going within to the heart center, to that sacred portal to all that is. And as you enter the sacred portal of the heart, we call forth for each of us for the full mergence with our soul, our higher self, our monad, our mighty I am presence, and all of our multidimensional being through to our God presence and goddess presence. Feel the power that this brings as you see, sense, and feel yourself in your mighty pillar of light. that pillar of ascension that is filled with the Mahatma energy, connecting you directly to source, connecting you directly to the heart of Mother Earth. Again, feel how empowering this is for you. As it begins to be filled with beautiful white light that is composed of snowflakes and starlight, tiny little stars, silvery stars. And it fills your pillar and it fills you within every cell, chakra, meridian layer of your org field. And this brings a sense of expansion to you. So expand your pillar as we ask to connect every man, woman, and child by saying the following affirmation. I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of every man, woman, and child. I am one with all of humanity. 
I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. And you feel that light swirling around you, bringing great cleansing and clearing and purification, assisting you in releasing anything that does not serve you. And we see every man, woman, and child joining us in doing the same as we seek to create divine order, divine perfection, divine health, and divine abundance in every aspect of our being, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, multidimensionally, through all time, space, and dimension, and in all arenas of life, the maximum that we can receive individually and collectively for all. So one with the I am presence of all humanity, we invite in for everyone, all of our guides, all of our soul extensions, planetary and galactic, all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage or ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pots. We welcome for one and all, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our Ascension Council, our Mission Council. We welcome for one and all, all of the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. And we welcome at this time all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim, all of which are here working with us here today, including all of their healing teams. We welcome the Ascended Masters, the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, all of the Enlightened Masters, all Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light. All ascended master healers and healing teams. And we welcome our friends in the Galactic Federation of Light and their healing teams, especially those we work so closely with, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, and from Venus working with you multidimensionally all of the higher bodies being brought to perfection we welcome all cosmic galactic universal healers that can be of service we welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven asking mother father god to overlight all that we do 
and magnify, magnify, magnify this work individually and collectively in divine order for each being a maximum of 10 billion times 10 billion fold in alignment with divine will and divine law. We call forth all the rays, all the flames, all the universal laws and ascension waves to work with us as well. Through every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of auric field, multidimensionally. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and evocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, activation, can we ask to receive it multidimensionally, including on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level, the maximum that we can receive individually and collectively, and easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody these frequencies. with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium, without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, without fear on any level, in love and light and laughter. Take a nice deep breath as you absorb this great light coming to you. Again, filled with the swirling snowflakes and silver stars and the magnificent white light of source, the white light of the Christ, the white light of purity, ascension, resurrection, hope, and grace. Now, we are specifically working with a lot of Divine Mother emissaries, so you may feel their energy around you. Working specifically with Mother Mary. And Mother Grace, working with the Mahatma energy, which is often seen as a rainbow white light, as they work with us to activate once again, to reinstate, to reinforce the Immaculate Concept, the Immaculate Concept working with us multidimensionally. working with the divine blueprint, the divine blueprint of our health. I can't, this is a new word, the divine blueprint of our faith. The divine blueprint of our abundance. The divine blueprint of our mission and purpose in life. So feel yourself wonderfully wrapped in this white energy that is filled with divine mother love. And become aware that you also feel as if you are being held in the womb of Mother Earth, providing a greater sense of safety, security, and protection than ever before. Sense and feel the angels of grace clearing so that we might allow grace and ease in our lives. Know that Mother Earth is receiving this each and every man, woman, and child 
is receiving this activation, this divine dispensation. As we work here between the Feast of the Immaculate Conception and Mary's Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. So much Divine Mother energy working with us. And again, the Angels of Grace working with us very gently. Sweeping away any energy, any thought patterns, any emotions that we might experience greater ease and grace in every arena of our life. Working with us as well are the cherubim and seraphim angels. They are here present gifting us each, individually and collectively, with divine wisdom, divine love, and the perfection of health, as well as harmony and balance. Just allow yourself to experience this in every sense. See it. Feel it. Know that this is taking place. As before you appear as Mother Mary. In a beautiful, beautiful radiance of white light. And activating her flame of the immaculate concept in white and blue. And as she radiates this energy to you, she is placing within each of your chakras a beautiful, beautiful white rose of purity placed in the crown chakra, in the third eye, in the throat, in the high heart, in the heart chakra, in the solar plexus, at the the navel chakra, right at the navel, and just below the navel at the sacral chakra, and at the root chakra, and all of the multidimensional chakras within your being, whether it's part of your light body or part of your physical form, like your hands and your feet and your knees, each and every chakra is being activated with the white rose of purity that blossoms and has such a beautiful, magnificent scent to it. What a sweetness fills your body, fills your being, fills your mind and your emotions. Allow yourself to be the sponge and absorb this. And mentally repeat after me. I am aligned with the divine. I am aligned with the divine. I am aligned with the divine.
I am perfection in all parts of my being and all arenas of my life. I am perfection in all parts of my being and all arenas of my life. I am perfection in all parts of my being and all arenas of my life. I am whole, safe, and secure. I am whole, safe, and secure. I am whole, safe, and secure. I radiate perfection. I radiate perfection. I radiate perfection. Only love and perfection fills my being. Only love and perfection fills my being. Only love and perfection fills my being. I am abundantly provided for in every area of life. I am abundantly provided for in every area of life. I am abundantly provided for in every area of life. Only love fills my being. For that is who I am. Only love fills my being. For that is who I am. Only love fills my being. For that is who I am. Mary sends her blessings at this most sacred time. And she asks you to remember your divinity and the divinity of all situations, no matter what may be appearing on the screen of your life or on the screen of the collective. Simply be loved. And give yourself permission to experience only love. Infinite blessings from Mother Mary and from myself. From all those that have worked with us here today. The Mahatma. The Divine Mother Energies. All of the energies of the Ascension and Resurrection and the entire company of heaven. Feel how blessed that you truly are.
and allow yourself to give thanks. We ask for this to be sealed as we say we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We're going to ask Gaia and Sandalvon to help us integrate this with total ease and grace. And I hope you have a beautiful, beautiful holiday season with all of the holy days that we are experiencing this month. Blessed be everyone. So I'm glad I hope you enjoyed this special meditation that Mary asked me to share with you today. And I plan to be back for our our usual Ascension to Meditation calls every Sunday and Monday. Chris, they won't they there won't be a call on Christmas Day. And there will be a shortened call on the twenty sixth. Since my family will be in. But it's gonna be a holy, holy season. Focus on the holiness. And please join us for the calls. the Ascension Meditation and Activation calls on Sundays and Mondays. Makes your week holier. Makes you feel like you're contributing to the whole as we work on anchoring heaven to earth. The introductions begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time. 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. After about 25 minutes, we have Tarn Rama give us a brief update so that by 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific, we are doing our work in earnest of bringing heaven to earth, of anchoring the new golden age. It's a teleconference call. You're dialing in, so make sure you take down the number. The main number is area code 432. 436-6200. Going to look up and make sure I have that right. (laughs) And I don't don't have any notes in front of me today, so... um, And I know Tara will will remind us as well, but I believe it's 432-4... Okay, let me me check. Hang on a second, everybody. Again, being out of practice just for being in the energies. I hope the energy was as strong for um, you guys as it was for me here, working with me right here. Wrong one. Okay. So the area, (laughs) we're going to go back here and go back to the code to enter is 946. Now I'm going to go blank out again here. Hang on a second. Um, uh, Cheryl, <laughs> I, I have it here. Oh, I'm struggle here. <laughs> oh, I'll be glad. It's all the energies that are coming in now. Everybody understands. It's all good. Four, two, five. Four, three. There we go. 
425-436-6260. And the PIN code is 946-7441-POUND. Again, the PIN code is 946-7441-POUND. Yes, and I found my number. It's, yeah, area code 425-436-6260. Thank you so much for stepping in. And I just want to thank everybody for their service um, and let them know that there's other do- numbers to dial, too. There's all kinds of numbers throughout the nation that you can dial in. There's international numbers, and there's a way to get on by uh, your computer. So contact me for that information. It's Cheryl Croce, C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I at AOL.com. So my love to each of you. I missed you guys last week, and um, excited to be back here, and um, really bringing in um, some beautiful, beautiful energies. I hope you enjoyed our work with Mother Mary here today. So, with that, I'm going to pass the talking stick. I hope you enjoyed it, Tara. I don't know if she's uh, muted herself again. Absolutely, okay. absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. So let's everybody stay in a state of grace and ease. And I'm going to pass the talking stick and send my love to all of you and pass the talking stick to Rainbird with all of these amazing frequencies, especially that white ray and all of the gifts that it brings, the ascension resurrection energy, and the Mahatma with the rainbow white light. And, of course, every other ray um, and every other energy that we could require. So I'm going to pass the talking stick, Rainbird. Thank you, dear. Thank you, Cheryl. We're so grateful for you, and we're grateful you're back. (laughs) And keep on healing. So I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener-supported radio program. It, It takes all of us to make it happen. Each week we have expenses with um, CBS Radio of $300, and uh, so there's an extra 300 this month because we have three weekends this month, so we want to keep up, and as um, we all pitch in, it makes it easier to do, and we can make it happen. We need $625 this week to catch up and be up to speed, and so... Yeah, let's all just go into our heart space and see what is ours to give. And then go to bbsradio.com, click on Radio Station 2 um, to access the menu for this program, and you'll find it at the 1.30 hour Pacific time on Saturdays, the true history, history, and the Sarah and our galactic origins. And as you click on that icon there on that listing, it'll take you directly to our account with CBS Radio. So we have two radio programs on BBS at Radio Station One, and they are on Thursdays and Fridays at the six o'clock hour on Thursday. It as you look at that menu, you'll find it at, at listed as a night at the round table with the panel. And you can click on that icon. That takes you to our account. And then our Friday show, The Hard News with Tar and Rama on Friday night. And that's also at the 6 o'clock hour 
And as you click on that icon, that takes you to our account. So that's how we do it. Thank you for taking that action. We are so grateful for all the ways that you show up in your lives and for showing up in this way. So lots of gratitude. And we're assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. And this week we're celebrating their anniversary, so we want to be extra generous and make sure that they can get their bills paid. Um, so they need $450 to cover the bills that they have to pay. And according to my calculations, that also includes the uh, $85 they need for an alignment for the car. Um, so they also need a couple hundred dollars for buying food and gas. They have and any other living expenses that, that come up during the week. They're definitely in need of food. So let's pay attention and make sure they have plenty so they can celebrate their anniversary. <laughs> so here's how we do it. We want to go to the web address to find the Rainbow Roundtables uh so here it is. It's the, re the web address is rainbowroundtable.net. And as you get to that homepage, click on the menu grid. And menu will drop down near the bottom of that list, long list. It's a big, it's a big website. <laughs> as you go to the bottom of that list, you see a donate button. Click on that. That will take you directly to uh, the Rainbow Roundtable site at PayPal. And there you can make that donation. And alternatively, if you want to access the friends option, just go to paypal.com and put in Rama's email there as you can gift him directly that way. That address is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. And there you go. Use your bank card to make that donation there. And because we're doing it with friends, it just makes it a little bit cheaper. It doesn't have the commercial expenses attached to it. Uh, either way, it's perfect. We're so grateful for all of your donations. And we're so grateful for Tara and Rama for all that they do. Staying dead fast with the program. Working all the time. I can attest to that. <laughs> and... Uh, just so much gratitude. So let's be generous and, and make it happen smooth and easy, nice and easy. They need that, um, yeah, 450 pay the bills and another 200 for expenses, 650. So, um, yeah, the tis the season for giving and we like to do that. So here's how we, after we make that donation, we need to let Rama know that you sent something. And so that email for Rama, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999 at Comcast.net. Send them an email. Let them know what you sent when you sent it. And then as you need it, the mailing address is Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280. 280. So that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, where the zip code is 87567. So there you have it, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567 is the zip. 
that's the whole deal. And so 13 thank yous and hunting in the heart. Long life <laughs> and no evil. And I'm passing this talking stick, and Cheryl said it best. It's full of all of those white, white light rays and... All the all the lights and all the rays from all the all the beings. It's very colorful. <laughs> so and we've got lots of fairies and feathers coming with it and all the little people and of course the unicorns are there and the little people, the manahoonies, the gnomes, the elves, the dwarves, the hobbits. The so greetings, Taran Rama, here comes his talking stick. Greetings. Greetings. So much love, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Thank, Thank you, you everyone, uh, for, you might say, calling in the energies for Cheryl to be back again. Yes. And uh, everything's progressing nicely. And uh, we're calling in infinite immortality now in this dimension planet earth right Rama? yes and joy to the world (laughs) (laughs) and um yes i just want to remember everybody know uh yeshu did not physically die on any cross there was another being called Aruhabi, and he was a lookalike, and he volunteered in this, in the, when the Roman centurions came to the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, I'm it, and he, and they took him away. But he didn't die on the cross either. No, he didn't. No, uh, but he, uh, he was taken down. He was put up there on that cross, but he was taken down by Magdalene and uh, uh, what's what was Mer- what was Yeshu's mother's name? Miriai. Miriai, right? M I R Y A I. I guess they called her Miriam biblically, but it was incorrect spelling. So her name was spelled M A M I R Y A I. Is that what I said? Yes, Miriai. But they they took him from there and they <laughs> they cleansed his wounds and all of that. But he went into the chamber, or they call it the sepulchre, and that was an initiation. He was able to transport himself to another dimension and come back into the body. And as we call it, raise from the dead. And he might say it's a metaphor for the ability to go into the bardo state. Yeah, there's a really good version of this story on YouTube, and it's called Risen. But they don't really 
admit to that being a different person. That's right. They don't. No. And uh, the thing is, is that immortality requires being able to interdimensionally travel. Yes. And not cause death in the physicality. At the point we're at right now, um, <laughs> as we identify with the physical, then uh, you might say there's something more. There Can you is. Put it that way. Yeah, and that's that place that I keep talking about where you feel the energies with what's going on and that stillness, the oneness, that's where everything shifts and I call it the force calling you and you better listen because let's say your life depends on it right at this time because we are going through the transformation of the ages. I am extremely thankful and grateful I am here every single second, even though sometimes it's it's a royal trip. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Um, I have been... Dealing with, we had a little talk on the conference call last night about me glowing because, um. <laughs> I meet all kinds of folks that glow, but it's at the same time, it's the inner light. And. Well, in my case, they were referring to, I got. Plutonium. Plutonium. That's another. A, a very strong dose of plutonium. It's another version of the violet flame, but it's used in the wrong way. Well, we were passing through the corridor when Los Alamos released a heavy dose of plutonium into the atmosphere. And it happened at the same time as the corridor, meaning that Los Alamos, um, uh, there's a mountain corridor where the plutonium could suck through 30 miles pretty much south and hit the people in the cars driving at the same time through the corridor that we were. And I pretty much stopped breathing. <laughs> uh, although um, I made a decision to take more plutonium in a sense into the body by rolling down the, the window and allowing the wind to force my lungs to breathe. And uh, so that saved my life for, for a moment in order to uh, continue. And I felt okay for a while. And we went on with our our lives. And we went to visit our friend in the mountains in El Rito. And we only stayed for about a half an hour because I had... Uh, I was standing in the open... Uh, plan on the second floor of the home at 8,300 feet, and I collapsed on the floor in agony uh, from abdominal, abdominal pain, and I literally crawled across the floor and 
pull myself up on this day bed that was at the window there and as I could do is to get up there and lay down and after about 10 or 15 minutes I felt I could get back up and Rama drove me back to Santa Fe to the hospital there Yeah. and by the time just made it just barely but I stopped breathing again and they had to do a, a jump start Yes. My eyes were in the back of my head, and the doctor, she said, never mind, and they applied the, uh, what do you call that? Oh. They jump-started me. The flippers. The flippers. (laughs) She's the flippers. And so I'm here talking to you about it. Yet I've had a heavy dose of plutonium, and... uh, I know I was talking last night to Don after the show that uh, there is a way to take a supplement um, that will, it's, it's a very potent, um, you might say, friendly bacterial supplement, and it also contains some other things. What's his name? Dr. Riguiero. Oh. Anyway, you can read, because that read... Paradisium. Paradisium. Um, but yeah. you can regenerate and grow another set of teeth in six weeks as you continue to work with this substance. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've got stem cells that can induce that kind of stuff too, but Super expensive is absolutely insane, and you have to go out of the country to get the treatments and to take your chances, and that's not the way we want to go. But I'm just going to say that <clears throat> it's it's not just a physical thing. <clears throat> As we connect with our cosmic consciousness, our cosmic conscious <laughs> awareness, and align our thoughts and call in divine emotion. And that doesn't mean that you might want to be mad about something or call in revenge of the Sith that doesn't work because everything you think, you will become. So if you want to hurt another, uh, it comes back and it reflects and hurts you too. Yes, it does. And um, uh, this is the difference between the prison system we have here. And it's about the 13th Amendment where it says that they can enslave you. The 13th Amendment has to have be changed. And uh, maybe we should just say it really quickly. i got to go find it. Rama, you want to talk a little bit about what you learned today? Oh, I just, um, I went and got another treatment with Rana Moo, and she used the red, blue, and violet lasers and yellow lasers. and Oh, she added the yellow. Yeah, and I did this for about almost 50 minutes, and... Towards the end, the pulses of light were getting so strong, it was like somebody kind of 
massaging me in the physical and I, that was as much as I could take at that point. It was um, quite intense, even though nothing touched me except the light. But I could physically feel it as if somebody was pressing on my body. <laughs> so and she told me there is a huge transformational change going on in Russia and China and Iran and other countries connected with the BRICS. And it's not about the United States, but it's about the wisdom that is being shared from the galactics who are showing up to help change this story uh, from one of war to one of peace. It's a big deal. And... Blaze of violet fire. <laughs> um, we are in the most transformative time ever, and the best is yet to come. I can say that as we continue to work with the quantum field, I mean every single day, more stories are coming out about quantum physics and the quantum field and how you can connect with it and connect with other folks who are in the office of the Christ and serve under the banner of love and work with helping us heal and the rest of humanity heal on this planet because... This is a giant story, and as um, so many folks, like from Gaia TV, Billy Carson, and Graham Hancock, and Freddie Silva, talk about this ancient story, Zachariah Sitchin, and I saw something on Twitter today where they found this huge stone gate. And it had symbols on the gate, kind of like um, when Gandalf and the hobbits and the dwarves were trying to enter the mines of Moria. And when you say certain mantras, the the symbols on the door glow and the door opens. Oh. <laughs> it's all about the sound frequencies that we are just beginning to learn about that are connected with light and emotions. And when you work with the force and you have your emotions in balance, you can do the things Luke Skywalker did. It's not a joke. It's real. <laughs> I pass the talking stick. Okay, Commander. So, um, the 13th Amendment, just to remind everybody. Section 1 states, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except 
as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. And Section 2, Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. And I'm going to just say that the prisons... Uh, state-level prisons are absolute hellholes. They're not appropriately uh, run. We're still kind of in that consciousness of medieval dungeons. That's what, well, that's a good word. Good and word. thank God they don't have the rack there or any other kinds of stuff, but they have goons who torture and abuse and kill folks. And oh, and they beat prisoners unconscious that they feel yeah. like it whenever they feel like it. Yeah. And There's not really rule of law going this on. This is not civilization. Federal prisons are better run. Let's put it that way. Yet there are other prison systems, especially in Norway and Sweden and Denmark, uh, they're much more advanced, and uh, Michael Moore did a movie about it. Oh, yeah. He did. Uh, I don't remember the name of it, but um, in Norway, the maximum uh, incarceral time is 20 years. And they only have a very small portion of their prisons where there's maximum security and you live in a cage and that's it. And it's like mass murderer type yeah. of thing. Um, in, and that being said, there are no guns in the rest of the prison and they don't stay in cells. They have a room, yet when it's time to get up in the morning... They all make breakfast together. They all give themselves different assignments. They rotate. They eat together communally. And then they go and they learn a profession. Whatever their carpentry or photography or there's numerous studies. So they get an education with oversight. There's no guns. Mm -hmm. And it has been very successful, and it works. And again, I mentioned that there are some prisons in India where they have a similar system, but they start up in the morning very early, like 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, and they do Vipanasu yoga and yes. as they begin their day. And then they help make food and all those things, and have classes and they have psychologists and therapy sessions and round tables and I mean it's just like ashram life in a sense mm -hmm. and um, yes we've both been in those things <laughs> more than one more lifetimes than I care to talk about well <laughs> mm, maybe but yeah. I wasn't talking, that's true, too, but things are, that's 
a bigger subject than today. Yet, we were told by the Faction Three White Knights, King of Swords, said that uh, the prison system in this country will be completely reformed post the enactment of Masara Law. And as Cheryl was, her work is all guided towards divine government. Yes. So those of us participating in with her in the work, and I'm just strongly suggesting that uh, you might want to come because that collective uh, intention of bringing divine government into play on earth can and does speed up the evolutionary cycle <laughs> to bring about the enactment of the Saralal, to bring about a state of equality amongst human beings. And again, we're going to listen here today to Graham Hancock. And George Nury. And George Nury. We're going to start. Thank you, Melissa, for sending this. We'll play this first. Graham Hancock's a very wise being. And you want to say a little bit about what he's going to share with George Nury? He's talking um, <coughs> Rama, you got to be careful when you're drinking water. You did that yesterday, too. He's talking about... Excuse you. Excuse me. Ancient... Ancient Apocalypse, it's a net, <coughs> it's a Netflix movie, and <coughs> okay, Rama's got a, a little delay here. You need to go somewhere and cough harder. <coughs> no. I just need to take a moment. Okay. Um, in the meantime. Okay. Okay. This ancient apocalypse story on Netflix, they uh, tinkered with it. And I read an article in the Independent and British newspaper and the Daily Mirror, and they're kind of criticizing Graham Hancock because he's talking about this ancient apocalypse, and it ties in with what Ancient Aliens is talking about in Gaia TV and the grander story of what happened with the flood. We all know the flood was the destruction of Atlantis and there was a polar shift. But the grander story is that at the same time that the flood happened, there was an interplanetary war going on. The planet called Maldek, it was also called... um Another name, uh, Marduk, 
possibly Maldek or um, Arduk was a being. Yeah. Not I, not necessarily a planet. Yeah, but that name was kind of synonymously tied in with Maldek. Anyways, this planet had an interplanetary interplanetary war going on with other beings connected with the Orion War and what was going on on Earth in Atlantis as the Twelve Kings were losing it and the Anunnaki and Sumeria were doing what they were doing and well, they were they were thrown out of Mesopotamia and they were sent to Maldek. Yeah. And the Anunnaki. Enki and Enlil knew that there were pieces of the asteroid which was part of the planet Maldek that was going to hit the Earth. They did not warn the people of Earth and thus the flood happened. And oh, I know. When the new when, when they nuked each other, Baldur yeah. and Vara were the two capital cities. Two cities on then Maldek. They literally caused the breakup of the planet Maldek, at Maldek, and it became an asteroid belt. So particles, pieces of the asteroid belt, which used to be Maldek, traveled through space and... Also, the nuclear fallout traveled to space as well. And the nuclear fallout, when it passed by Mars, it picked up all the water on the surface of Mars and it kept traveling and it hit the Earth. Hit the Earth and that was called the flood. Yeah. Yeah, I guess there were asteroid pieces also that hit the Earth, caused some damage here. I don't, I haven't listened to this. So I don't really know if Graham Hancock's going to bring it up, but he might. <laughs> well, there's something worthy of a listen, so let's get started. Yeah. Okay. Sorry for the long explanation. Come on here. Our special guest, Graham Hancock, with us tonight, live in the United Kingdom. Graham has a incredible series on Netflix called Ancient Apocalypse. We'll talk with him about that and some more things next on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie back with Graham Hancock, who has become recognized as an unconventional thinker who raises... Legitimate questions about humanity's history and prehistory and offers an increasingly popular challenge to the views of orthodox scholars. He graduated from Durham University with first class honors in sociology. He then went on to pursue a career in quality journalism, writing for many of Britain's leading newspapers. He's a noted author as well. One of his recent books called Visionary. And of course, he's got a series on Netflix now called Ancient Apocalypse. Graham, welcome back to the program, my friend. Hi George, good to be good to be with you again. I got to tell you, my daughter's my daughter's been watching your apocalypse series, and she's just riveted by it. And she told me, if you ever have Graham Hancock back on the show, tell him I love that stuff. <laughs> so I'm passing it Thank on. You. Thank you, daughter, very much for for watching me. Yeah, it's it's quite a breakthrough this um, this series to get um, you know big alternative ideas about. Uh, about our shared human prehistory uh, out on a 
on a major mainstream platform. Absolutely. And, um, with a, with a, you know, with, with a budget to really go to the locations and, and produce beautiful filmography and present the story. And of course it's driving archaeologists nuts. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've had, I've had archaeological opposition to, to what I do for more than 30 years. Um, and that is, that is fair enough because I'm, I'm saying, I think, in my opinion, uh, that uh, we have lost something very important in our prehistory. I think there's been a forgotten episode during the Ice Age. I think there was something that we would recognize as a true civilization uh, in the world at that time. And this is not recognized by archaeologists uh, and um, not taught by archaeologists. So there's been a lot of anger that uh, a mainstream platform like, like Netflix has allowed me to uh, express my ideas openly. But fortunately, uh, we live in a country, I mean, countries with freedom of speech, mm-hmm. um, and people can uh, express their own views. So despite the Society for American Archaeology writing an open letter to Netflix, basically asking them to take my series off the air or <laughs> reclassify it as fiction, uh, apart from that attempt at censorship, which is only the latest of uh, many, uh, the fact is that this show is going to stay on the air. Uh, I do have a right of freedom of speech. Uh, right. I am presenting facts and evidence, although it's not evidence that archaeologists are willing to accept. Uh, and if they're going to get themselves all tied up in knots, because somebody is expressing a point of view different from their own, that's their own business. I'll just say one one more thing in this opening rant, and that is that archaeology, um, t- when it comes to studying the prehistory of humanity, archaeology, academic archaeology, has an almost total monopoly. Certainly a total monopoly when it comes to excavating uh, ancient sites, but also a monopoly on information because the findings of archaeologists, the conclusions of archaeologists, the interpretations that they place upon their evidence are what is taught to us in school. We almost take it in with our mother's mother's milk. It it, it riddles the entire education system. It dominates mainstream media presentations. This is why it's so unusual to get an alternative show on on Netflix. And and what I'm trying to do with, with Agent Apocalypse is just provide some balance to that very unbalanced hyper dominance that archaeology has uh, over the interpretation of our shared and collective past. Well, you've done eight episodes. What are the possibilities of the program going into the second season with more episodes? Well, that that will be entirely entirely up to Netflix, um, and and um, I, I believe that you know there's, there's there's quite a number of different factors that they take into account before commissioning a second season. There's no doubt that the open letter from the Society for American Archaeologists uh, is an attempt to censor uh, or get the show shut down. Um, I'm really astonished that people who call themselves American Archaeologists, the home of freedom of speech, uh, would would attempt to to censor uh, an yeah. alternative point of view. This is a most most un-American way to behave, uh, and I think it's outrageous. But I believe Netflix will. I believe Netflix will stand by me uh, with this uh, with this first season, and uh, I hope very much we'll get a second season and dive even deeper. 
How long did it take to do the eight episodes? Over what time span? Of course, we coincided with, guess what, COVID. Yeah, exactly. So the series, the series began to be contemplated back in 2019. And we were all ready to shoot in, in, 20, in 2020. Um, but then, of course, there was the long, the long COVID delay. And we didn't actually get on the road. With, what with lockdowns, or travel restrictions of all sorts, um, and, and a 10-person team, you know, who had to be kept together. This was a very difficult, very difficult project. And I'm very grateful to Netflix and to ITN Productions for their ITN Productions independent television news. They're a big news house here in Britain, but they have a separate production house. And it was ITN Productions who actually made the show for Netflix. I'm very grateful to both Netflix and ITN Productions for just keeping going despite these adverse circumstances. We didn't shoot the first episode until around about uh, November of uh, 2020. Uh, and that was an episode in Malta and another episode in Turkey. And then we had various further delays through 2021, um, more shows shot. And finally, we got the last show shot during 2022. Um, and now it's out there. So it's been a very long a very long adventure. I'm, I'm glad Netflix put all episodes out at once rather than making people wait week by week. Right. I, I like it. Because it is a whole argument. It's not just what, what, one episode builds on another and the, 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 the whole argument builds up, up across the eight episodes until we come to the conclusion in the eight episodes. But it was a, it was an enormous project and, and I was lucky to have a really fantastic team of of creative and dedicated individuals who were committed to making this story. And we're, we're really glad that it's out there and that people can make up their own minds whether or not the Society for American Archaeologists wants them to. And those of us who love to binge watch, this is perfect. You can watch all eight episodes if you want to, right away. Exactly. And I have to confess, that's, that's the way I often watch Netflix series, is just to, to binge watch. Um, because, um, you know, storytelling is a, Storytelling is an ancient art. It's been it's been with humanity since the beginning, um, and you know we're constantly finding new ways to to reinvent the story. And I like the I like the format of an extended series, which allows it whether whether we're talking drama or, or whether we're talking documentary, it allows us it allows an argument to be unfolded, a story to be unfolded over over a fair period of time and to draw in and involve the viewer in that story so the viewer becomes part of the adventure of the quest. Tell me a little bit about uh, the locations you went to and how you selected them. Yeah. Well, it was partly um, partly where we could get to during COVID. This was, uh, this was an element. Um, and partly where I absolutely wanted to get to and partly where authorities would allow us to get to. So although ancient Egypt is, is a very important um, element of my argument over, over more than 30 years and features very strongly in, in almost all of my books, and although we had an episode scheduled to film in Egypt, when the Egyptian authorities discovered that I was going to be presenting the episode, they denied us filming permission. Uh, and we were not able to get into Egypt. This is what I mean about archaeological censorship. Archaeologists in Egypt are 
particularly opposed to my work, to the notion of a lost civilization, even though the ancient Egyptians themselves spoke of receiving the gifts of civilization from the gods who were in Egypt in a former remote period called the first time that Tepi, despite, uh, despite that, uh, people just ignore that as myth um, and object to the idea of any precursor civilization which might in some way have influenced uh, or had an impact upon the extraordinary achievements of the ancient Egyptians themselves. And because I'm open to the idea of a lost human civilization of the Ice Age with a tradition that carried down into historical times, uh, I got banned from filming in Egypt. And what an effective way for the archaeological lobby to censor mm-hmm. one of their main critics by denying me access uh, to a country that's very important to my argument. Is this happening uh, to you all over the place? Yes, it's happening to me all over the place. It happened to be at Serpent Mound in Ohio. Uh, fortunately, there we were able to make the episode because I've been and filmed at Serpent Mound <laughs> undercover, as it were, back in 2017. And my wife, Sampa, is an excellent photographer, and she had um, a drone up and photographed the moment of the summer solstice sunset uh, over Serpent Mound back in 2017, which is a magical moment of the marriage of, of, of Earth and sky. Uh, we have friends around Serpent Mount who have land adjoining Serpent Mount. We were able to fly drones. And ultimately, I stood in front of the gates of Serpent Mount, which were closed to me, and read the letter uh, from the organization that, that runs Serpent Mount, the, the Ohio, um, the OHC, uh, to, to say that uh, they were not, because my, because my ideas disagreed with theirs, uh, they were not going to allow me to film in the front. Uh, so, so this is, um, you know, this is just a straightforward, straightforward uh, block. I'm not sure. I don't see anything. Our special guest, Graham Hancock, with us tonight, live oh, in the United Kingdom. We should be looking for ourselves in the past. Um, my, my proposition is that we've lost an episode of the human story, but I don't think that that episode concerns uh, a highly industrialized civilization or one with mm, cell phones or, or sending people to the moon. Um, I think that uh, in terms of... In terms of their, their technological level, if we want to pipeline that in our terms, probably similar to Western civilization um, in the mid to late 18th century. Um, in other words, they had they had been able to sail and to navigate the world. Um, they had left maps which showed the world as it looks during the Ice Age. They had um, incorporated precisely accurate relative longitudes on those maps. So that's a big deal because our civilization didn't crack the longitude problem until the mid-18th century. Uh, before that, 
a shipmaster wouldn't know whether he was 300 miles east or west of a particular point, and there was always the danger of sailing into a cliff in the dead of night because he miscalculated. But, but uh, once the longitude problem was cracked with Harrison's chronometer, an accurate chronometer that could keep time at sea, uh, then we started putting accurate longitudes on maps ourselves from that time. But the point, the point is that those accurate longitudes exist on much more ancient maps themselves copied from even older source maps. And on those old maps, we see features like Antarctica correctly displayed, which our civilization didn't discover until around the year 1820. Um, so there's a real uh, indication of a seafaring, navigating civilization that had um, explored the world, that, that understood astronomy and geometry, uh, and, and that was capable of remarkable feats. And this is where, you know, we come to a site like Gobekli Tepe, mm-hmm. Turkey. An incredibly important site, probably the most important archaeological site in the world today. And it's important because the work began there 11,600 years ago. There, you ask, what wiped this civilization out? The answer is the immense, sustained, long-term global cataclysm known to geologists as the Younger Dryad. Which I'm, that's why and, you and, and what hap- what happened? Uh, YAS. Well, what happened was that uh, that uh, the 12,800 years ago, the world the world went into a, a, a cataclysmic event. The best evidence, and maybe we'll go into this in the next segment, but the best evidence um, for, for for this is is the incredible rises in sea level that took place at the beginning and at the end. Of the Younger Dryas. This was 1,200 years of radical climate shift. The world had been warming up. Suddenly it went incredibly cold. Sea level rose, but megafauna, the, 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 the huge fauna, megafauna of the ice age, the, the mastodons, the, the mammoths. Was this Noah flood time, Graham, or was that uh, much earlier? The, the story of Noah's flood is one amongst thousands of pieces of testimony that have come down to us from the ancient world, which, in my opinion, be given no more elevation or no less elevation than any of the other hundreds and even thousands of traditions that speak of an enormous global flood that destroyed, that brought to an end a previous golden age, uh, and that often speaks of the misbehavior of the inhabitants in that previous golden age having something to do with the bringing down upon their heads of the wrath of the universe. That's the same story that Plato tells in the, in the story of Atlantis, and it's a story that's told in, in flood myths and traditions uh, all around the world. Uh, and, and I just happen to think that Noah's flood is, is one of those one of those stories. And it's interesting that the Ark of Noah uh, ends up on Mount Ararat, uh, which is very close to Gobekli Tepe. Now, there was never any flood that carried seawaters as high as Mount Ararat. Let's be clear on that. But if you were the survivors of a civilization fleeing rising sea levels, and I'm not sure when they would stop rising, you would be smart to head to high ground. So I think Mount Ararat and other high places during, during, during the, the, the terrible events of the Ender Dryas were, were chosen as places of refuge by survivors. Graham, hold on for a sec. We're going to hit a break, but we'll come back and chat more about the incredible work you're doing with Ancient Apocalypse. And then we'll talk about your latest work called Visionary, The Mysterious Origins of Human Consciousness, in just a moment. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with Graham Hancock. We're talking about his incredible work. Graham, have you come across any stories about the ancient Vermanas, the so-called flying machines? Uh, 
Um, well, yes, of course. Um, in um, the, there was a period of of my research uh, around the last two years of the 1990s and the first uh, three years of the 2000s when when I focused very very much on on ancient India um, and produced a book called uh, Underworld at that time. Yes, I mean the the ancient Egyptian, ancient Indian traditions and, and many traditions from from around the world do. Do reference uh, flying machines. It's not. Uh, it's not a matter of uh, priority interest to me because I think there's stronger evidence uh, for a lost civilization, and I don't happen to think that the lost civilization that I'm trying to get to grips with and have spent the last 30 years trying to get to grips with was flying around the world mm-hmm. in airplanes. Maybe the Indian traditions refer to an even earlier epoch of, of lost civilization, but I'm talking about a civilization that flourished during the Ice Age, during the last uh, 100,000 years, and that was wiped out uh, between 12,800 years ago and 11,600 years ago, just uh, yesterday in geological terms, a, a, a time that is um, remembered in myths and traditions all, all around the world. So. So yeah, I'm aware of accounts of demanders in myths, uh, but I would want to, I would want to see more than myths before, um, for example, uh, doing an episode uh, about them. But if people want to send me uh, material uh, that uh, I perhaps haven't seen before on demanders, I would certainly consider them for, for future investigation. They're one of the many intriguing hints and, and little gifts that we get from the past myths and traditions that tell us that things are not exactly as we have been taught uh, in schools and universities. One of our listeners emailed me during the break and said, please ask Graham if he thinks there's other structures underneath Gobekli Tepe. There definitely are. It's a good question. And, and um, actually, this is, this is known already because the German Archaeological Institute, which has been slowly excavating at the Becky Petty since the mid-1990s, um, has conducted a, a thorough ground-penetrating radar survey um, of the, uh, around the whole of the hill um, of which Gobekli Tepe is a part. And uh, that ground-penetrating radar survey shows that there are dozens more of these um, circular enclosures of megaliths uh, and hundreds of large megalithic pillars, some of them looking to be in the range of 20 tons, which is about the size of the largest pillars that have so far been excavated. Hundreds of megalithic pillars still underground, uh, awaiting further excavation. Now, I have I have mixed feelings about this because I agree with archaeologists that we should not, you know, simply destroy an ancient site in order to get at all of its secrets. But I think that more work does need to be done at Gobekli Tepe. Um, to clarify whether what is what is um, presently called it in, in enclosure B and the, the oldest of the enclosures and the gigantic pillars within it, which dates to 11,600 years ago, whether it is in fact the oldest enclosure, or whether there are even older enclosures still underground, which is which is perfectly possible. And and not only at Gobekli Tepe, but but at least 11 other sites have been found in a kind of ring around Gobekli Tepe, all on prominent hilltops, all intervisible, best known and, and one that, that we filmed out for, for my Netflix series, Ancient, Ancient Apocalypse, is called Karahan Tepe, um, very recently excavated, a very spooky site, seems to be dedicated to 
to serpents. There's a semi-subterranean enclosure with, with pillars carved out of the bedrock and one freestanding pillar and then a human face on a kind of serpentine neck juts out of the wall of the enclosure, again cut from solid bedrock. Um, and, and, and it just creates the most strange and spooky feeling. I can't even begin to guess what the purpose of that enclosure was, but it too dates back to around 11,600, 12,000 years ago. And at Terahantepe, as in Tepe, there are more structures still waiting to be excavated underground. So I think we're just scratching the surface of a huge mystery here. And it is a mystery because until the discovery of Rebecca Tepe, archaeologists were convinced that there were no older megalithic structures in the world than about 6,000 years ago. They were convinced of that. And suddenly, here, more than 5,000 years old than that, 11,600 years ago, not 6,000, but 11,600 years ago, we find this enormous, highly sophisticated, very precise uh, megalithic structure, which is part of a series of, 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 of structures. So clearly the archaeological picture that said, you know, we couldn't have any megalithic architecture before uh, about 6,000 years ago, which dominated the, the story of megalithic architecture until the discovery of Gobekli Tepe. Clearly that story is wrong, and it needs to be replaced with something else, something much more nuanced, something much more subtle, recognizing that things were going on in the Ice Age that we're only just beginning to get to grips with now. Graham, uh, this year you came out with a book called Visionary, The Mysterious Origins of Human Consciousness, where you tried to tie together what happened to the modern human mind today. How did we get here? Yeah. Well, first, first of all, to be, to be absolutely clear with, with our listeners, George, the Visionary is, is a, an updated version of a book that I published in 2005. Right. Called Supernatural, Meetings with the Teachers of Ancient Mankind. And it's updated in a very specific way, which is that I, that I add a foreword and an afterword to it, uh, updating. Uh-oh. Can you just go forward and see if that helps? I'm going to try to go a little forward. I don't know what to tell you either. Yeah. I'm going to have to do this. We're not going to play that over again. Mm. If it's not going to work. Our special. No. No. Okay. Okay, maybe we should just go to the other. Well, if you're just joining us, legendary. No. Okay. Hmm. We'll go to section four, see if we can find section four. Oh, well, I was you were starting to do that, and you said let it go. No, I thought you were starting over on section no. three. Oh, well, go to section four. Okay. I just sounded like you were doing the first thing all over again. <laughs> no. 
don't know what's happening here. Um, just a second. Okay. Yeah, we'll go to section four now. Okay. Well, if you're just joining us, legendary Graham Hancock with us. His television show is on Netflix called The Ancient Apocalypse, and he's got a whole slew of books. His latest is Visionary, which is a modification of one of his earlier books on the supernatural. We're going to come back and continue chatting with Graham and taking your calls on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back, George Norrie with you, along with Graham Hancock. Graham, when you were videotaping the Ancient Apocalypse series, though you had uh, outlined most of the programs, did you come across anything that was surprising to you? Yes, uh, virtually everywhere we went, actually. But, but That's a repeat, so I'm going to let it go. It, it, it says four up there. Yeah, I clicked on hour four, and it brought it all the way back. To the beginning, and maybe if I stretch it, I did. Tangled. And I heard recently that the aliens or an ET race or ancestors took Neanderthal and Cro Magnum and sliced through their cells 62 times to create humans mm-hmm. to. Uh, Telepathically insert technology into their minds so they. Well, I don't think technology is needed. I, I, I think it's very clear that the ancestors of anatomically modern humans and Neanderthals uh, were um, interbreeding quite extensively. And, That's the theory of the Anunnaki, isn't it, Graham? Many modern populations have up to 5% of Neanderthal DNA and up to 4% of Denisovan DNA. I, I actually don't need the Anunnaki for this. Uh, ancient humans spread all around the world at different periods. Uh, hold on, all- hold on, Graham. Hold on. We're at the break. Uh, we'll come back and wrap that up and take final calls. On our next Coast to Coast program, James Rickard joins us to talk about what he believes to be a collapse of the dollar. Wow, let's find out. And then we'll be talking about the angel world on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back, George Norrie, our final segment with Graham Hancock. We are talking about, though, number one, his Netflix series, Ancient Apocalypse. Who came up with that name? Did you, Graham? That's great. <laughs> Actually, no, I didn't. Um, that, that suggestion came from, from Netflix and from ITN Productions, the, the, the production company. Um, we uh, took a long time to arrive at it, but it is the bottom line of this series, and that's why it makes sense. But we, what it comes down to... Uh, and, and what desperately needs to be understood by archaeologists is the gigantic extent of the cataclysm that took place at the end of the Ice Age and how radically it reshaped our world. And archaeology cannot claim to have the keys to the truth about the whole of the human past while it ignores the implications of that ancient apocalypse. Uh, and that's what we reveal in, in episode eight uh, of the series with the gradual gradual build-up to that and the evidence that makes sense of it, the running into the debris stream of a fragmented, disintegrating comet, the bombardments, all of the uh, the evidence in the Younger Dryas boundary layer, this layer of, of 
acid and burnt earth all around the world, which contains nanodiamonds that are created in the shock and heat of the impact, which contains melted quartz that only melts at temperatures above 2,000 degrees centigrade, carbon microspherules, platinum, iridium, all of these are signatures of, of a global bombardment of fragments of a disintegrating comet, and, and it's, it's right there at the roots of the time that we think of as the beginning of history, and my point is that it's not the beginning, it's a re-beginning, it's a, it's a rebooting of the human story, and we've missed a hugely important episode, and I hope that the series will draw more attention to that idea, get mm-hmm. thinking about that idea, uh, and uh, perhaps, who knows, even encourage uh, eventually some archaeologists to actually investigate that idea instead of sneering at it. And we were talking before the break about the possible seeding of what creatures might have been on this planet that turned into humans. Uh, part of the Zechariah Sitchin theory of the Anunnaki. Not my theory, George, I have to say. Yeah. Not my theory. I need to be clear. I knew Zechariah. He was a great man. I once had the privilege of driving him from Stonehenge to London. Um, he but, was passionate about his work. But you're professional enough to listen to the other side, unlike some of these other people who don't want to listen yeah. to you. Yeah, you bet. I'm, I want to listen to every side. I want to hear what everybody's got to say. And I spent a lot of time, by the way, listening to what archaeologists have to say. And if people actually read my books, if these critics actually read my books, <laughs> instead of just pouring scorn on them, they'd find that I'm quoting mainstream archaeological papers, academic papers published in top scientific journals all around the world that I, that I give hundreds and in some cases thousands of references to such papers. The only difference is that I interpret the evidence uh, in a different way from archaeologists. We're looking at the same evidence, um, and I'm offering an alternative interpretation based on 30 years of, 30 years of, of independent study. Um, I, I have taught myself how to do this, and I think some of the best study is that way. I want to pay tribute to my friend and colleague, Randall Carson, uh, you know, a self-made uh, geologist. He's a, he, 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 he builds houses by, by profession, but he's a master of geology, and he's made himself that through self-study. Let's, let's realize that the citizen, the everyday person, the man in the street, the woman in the street, is capable of contributing as much to the understanding of our past as the so-called elite archaeologists from Ivy League universities. We all have a share in knowing about the truth of our past, and we all have light to shed on that, and every view is welcome, because at the moment, yeah. it's a great unknown. I think they're jealous of you, Graham. Well, there may be an element of there may be an element of that. Um, I, sus- I suspect uh, it seems um, uh, it seems that this Netflix show has particularly annoyed them um, because they would rather that the budget for the show had been given to a mainstream archaeologist to tell us to the game, That's right. mainstream position, which we've been told repeatedly, endlessly, from the moment we entered school until the moment that we listened to any mainstream media program. Let's go to Gabriel in Brooklyn, New York. Go ahead, Gabe. Thanks for calling. Yes, um, I'd like to say, Mr. Nori, I love your show. Your show is my company when I'm working the night shift in Brooklyn. Thank you, Gabriel. Um, and that was my dad's name, by the way. Oh, wow. <laughs> it made my day. It made my night, I mean. Um, Mr. Hancock, I have um, yeah. a number of your books, and I'm currently reading Magic of the Gods. The question that I have is, what is your take on um, Adam's calendar? which is found in South Africa. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting site. I've, I've actually been there with Michael Tellinger, um, and um, I've been to some of the other... Um, the, Adam, Adam's calendar is 
it's really interesting because it, it's, it's clearly and genuinely a, a megalithic site. Um, the, the other sites that, that Michael is interested in, I'm not so sure. Um, however, uh, I, 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 my, my, my approach really has not been to go further or more deeply into that particular mystery. I have so many other mysteries that I'm engaged in where I have more material at hand that I feel more urgently needs to be put out. But I keep an open mind on the whole Adam's calendar story. I think there's, I think that Africa is one of the great underserved areas by archaeology. There's been too little archaeology in, in Africa, uh, not only in South Africa, but across the continent. Just think about the Sahara Desert. That's 9 million square kilometers that's hardly been studied by archaeology at all. <coughs> and yet they claim to have complete knowledge uh, of, uh, or, or, or if not to have complete knowledge, to be the experts whom we should solely consult uh, about our past. Uh, there's many mysteries in, in Africa. I'd like to see more work done on Adam's calendar. It's just not a mystery yeah. that I've since South Africa, isn't it? It's in South Africa. Yeah. yeah, and it's like Stonehenge a little bit, isn't it? Uh, in the sense that there's a series of standing uh, columns. Yes, it's it's uh, it's it's a megalithic site of standing stone. Next up, let's go to Joe, Long Island, New York. Hey, Joseph, go ahead. Hey, Glenn. A couple of questions. First is. You know, you were talking about the hunter-gatherer survivalists and possibly, you know, very advanced technology people. Would they have had, it, you know, I'm generalizing a different approach to thinking about the supernatural and using the supernatural? Oh, yes. Yes, I think so. This is, this is one of the reasons why I always say we shouldn't look for ourselves in the past because our civilization has got particular hallmarks and, and one of the hallmarks of our civilization is the absolute refusal to believe in anything that can't be weighed or measured or counted so so our civilization re rejects the supernatural and does not investigate it. It, it, it it wants to look for physical explanations for everything and thus our civilization sneers at human capacities like uh, telepathy uh, even though there's been good scientific work done for example by Rupert Sheldrake which shows that uh, telepathy does uh, exist. I think the ancient civilization that I'm talking about pursued a very different path to our own, um, and I think that path included what would be recognized as psychic powers today. Oddly enough, in my books, I don't say more than two or three pages about this, but whenever my critics want to attack me, they say, oh, Hancock believes in psychic powers of the ancients. Well, I just think it's an interesting inquiry, and mm -hmm. not what I devote my books to. First time caller, Joe in New Jersey. Hey, Joe, go ahead. Uh, yes, uh, I'm going to be in, in January 2nd, 77. 70, I was uh, listening to this guy. His, I don't know if you ever heard of him. His name is George Lindsay, and he wrote a, a book on history. And he goes all the way back to the Polarians. Uh, he mentioned first the people from Atlantis. Then he mentioned the people from Lemuris. The people from Lemuris were uh, Morphodites, and they had like a, an eye in the middle, middle of their forehead. Who is this, who is this that, book by? I don't know this a little bit. George this Lindsay. Name, don't know George him. Lindsay. And then he mentioned these people named the Hyperboreans, and they look like the cavemen, and that's when they brought in borders. And then they mentioned before that people called Polarians, and they didn't speak orally. They spoke with their minds, and they had no borders at that time. And uh, I'm, I'm calling up to mention that. Uh, did you ever read? Thank, thank you for having that to the, to, to the, to the discussion. I, I wasn't aware of that book, but I'll check it out. Interesting take. Lots of different theories out there, Graham. 
Yes, because the past is truly the great unknown, uh, and we need lots of theories. We need to investigate it in, 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 in many different ways. Why did we lose the knowledge? What, what happened well, to transition? I, I think it's the younger dryads. I think it's this, it's very important to be clear. This wasn't just another night cataclysm. This was 1,200 years of horror that afflicted the earth. Uh, and, and, you know, we can see the, the fingerprint of that in the extinction of the, of the Ice Age megafauna, uh, at that, at that time. This was such a severe event that, uh, Uh-oh. Not again. Mom? I don't know. I don't think we can... Stretch We'll have to figure this out another time. So yeah. let's do our higher consciousness Gaia TV. This is called Aware Glimpses of Consciousness on Gaia TV. Oh. What about this one? Oh. Hidden States and Secret Experiences in Egypt with Patricia... I yawn, I, I yawn, layman, and Jocelyn Starfeather. Oh, that's like an hour. Hour and 17 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, we got that time. We got that time. Okay. I mean, do you want to do that next? Mm, this one, actually, this might be better. Glimpses of Consciousness. Okay, let yeah. me just read this to everybody um, before yeah. you start. It is getting dark. It is so crazy. All right, everybody. Um, let me pull this forward. All right. We got glimpses of that anyway, but we'll have to move on here. What is consciousness? Is it all living beings? Is it in all living beings? Is it in, thank you, all living beings? What happens when we die? Why do we seem to be hardwired for mystical experience in these times of existential crisis? There has been an explosion of research into consciousness. After four centuries of silence, scientists are confronting the big questions, cutting a window into a realm previously held t tight by philosophy and religion. Aware follows six brilliant researchers approaching the greatest of all mysteries from radically different perspectives, from within and from without, through high-tech brain research and 
Eastern meditation by scientifically exploring inner space through psychedelic substances and by investigating the consciousness of plants. Yes, I met a, a young man when I went to Houston to the Esoteric Philosophy Center and he wrote a book, I don't remember his name anymore, but he wrote the book called The Secret Life of Plants. And that's who I met when I went up to the top of the stairs, not quite the top, but the next to the top. And this succulent plant, five feet tall, literally bowed to me. There was no making it up. Anyway, these things do happen. So, uh, by scientifically exploring inner space through psychedelic substances and by investigating the consciousness of plants, scientists are arriving at new insights. Some have been integral to indigenous knowledge for millennia. So, this is featuring actually seven people here. I know he said six, but Matthew Ricard... Monica Gagliano, Crystal Koch, Josefa Kirvin, Kulix, Roland R. Griffins, Richard Boosby, and Mingyur Rinpoche. All right, let's get started. This is one hour and 42 minutes. Let's see how far we get. Mm. They're showing the Earth from space at the moment. There's a deeper mystery here, and it's really the mystery of consciousness, and it's the mystery of what we don't understand about the nature of this conscious experience that we're living in. There's this existential wonder about what's really going on here. What's the meaning of life? What happens when we die? Why are we awake? How is it that we're aware that we're aware?
we've been asking for millennia, what is life? Isn't that what we all want to know? What is life? What is consciousness? We answer one, we find the other. Consciousness is the essence of life to me. that at one point there was this one first cell and basically everything that needed to be known was in there because from there everything else just emerged how did the one little cell know how to become you cannot not be in all of life in all its forms Ciencia es como el viento que no puedes como sientes, pero no lo puedes atrapar. I die is to understand how consciousness fits into the universe, how it's compatible with the laws of physics and biology that have been so successful at describing everything else around it. I had this magic mushroom experience. I was sitting here just on the beach. I was listening to minimalist music and the rays of the sun were reflecting off the water and you had these fantastic hallucinations superimposed everything slowed down until I thought I arrived at the center at the, at the beating heart of the universe and I finally understood I understood how it all works but it's ineffable afterwards you have great difficulty explaining it And so if you, you know, apply the cold, sodden, wet blanket of reason, you have to sort of question yourself, what did you experience and what does it reflect? Does it really reflect a different experience, a fundamental different aspect of the universe or is it just 
another intensely pleasurable experience produced by my brain. The magic is that you experience anything at all. The magic is that your brain, which is a piece of physical furniture like this boat, that a physical object can feel, that is the heart of the mind-body problem. I'm dedicated to cortex. It's what I have on my body. Few scientists have that. Consciousness is any experience, any feeling. It feels like something to be angry. It feels like something to remember something. It feels like something to see red. Common to them all is subjectivity. I'm here to direct this large institute of freenet people focusing on trying to understand the cortex, accelerating neuroscience by building these large observatories to peer at the brain. Hi, howdy, howdy. How's it Very well. Mouse, human? This is mouse. We have this project here at the Allen Institute. It's a wiring layout of the brain that involves taking a tiny grain of brain matter, literally one cubic millimeter. So it's like quinoa, a grain of quinoa, one by one by one millimeter, cutting it into 30 nanometer thin slices, 25,000 of them at the level of electron microscopy, and then using modern machine learning techniques where I can automatically reconstruct the precise wiring because in this piece of quinoa grain, there are roughly 50,000 cells and there's a few kilometers of wiring. And once I understand which neuron is wired to which, I really understand a whole lot more about what makes this matter so special. So those are mitochondria. Yes, some mitochondria. This is a and that's a micrometer or what? A no, half this a micrometer. Would be, this would be a micrometer, something like that. Yeah. So. Can you go all the way to layer one here? Yeah. How does layer one look? Because it looks beautiful everywhere. At this point, it is not clear whether at this level you can distinguish whether it's a human brain or mouse brain. And the point I was making that the basic hardware of all of us is the same. Whether we are a mouse or a dog or monkey or a human or whale, at this level, it's all very similar. The brain is the most highly organized and complex piece of matter in the known universe. I always say I get a, a, you know, shiver down my back. Yeah, because he just sees vast untold complexity upon complexity upon complexity. And each brain is unique and different, right? And you can go back to a, to a famous example when it comes to consciousness that Leibniz made uh, in his mill examples uh, 350 years ago. Because he said you can never find consciousness. And even if you go into a mill, as it were, that was his analogy at the time. And you zoom in inside the mill, you see no, nothing but levers moving. And the same thing here with respect to consciousness. You go inside, you see, well, where is consciousness? I don't see consciousness. I see synapses and I see mechanisms, right? That was the point of, of lightness. All of these mechanisms. And somehow out of this emerges consciousness. 
it look, what they're showing at that level of microscope, how deep it looks like what's out in space. I mean, <laughs> inside the quinoa. Inside brain. the brain. Inside the quinoa brain. Yeah. Inside the quinoa brain. Yes. G R A I N, not brain. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. We're all what connected. is it about this piece of, of goo, of gray goo, that gives rise to the feeling of love? Because if I look at in, um, in physics, if I look at the foundational theories of physics, quantum mechanics and relativity, there's no love there. There's no experience. There's no pain and pleasure. If I look at, at the periodic table of the elements, again, there's no consciousness in there. There's no feelings and love and hate and dreams and desires. If I look at the endless ATGC chat in my genes, there isn't anything there. But here, every day, I open my eyes in the morning and I have feelings mm -hmm. of love, of pain, of sadness. And so the, 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 the big question, the heart of the, of this ancient mind body problem is really how do you make, how do you turn the waters of the brain into the wine of our conscious experience? Consciousness is before everything an experience. I think most neuroscientists who work on consciousness, they know very well. You could track to the last neurons of the 100 billion neurons with a complete map of everything that takes place when you see red or feel anger or love. Fine. But unless you know what experience is by the first person, it tells you nothing about what it is to be and to experience. Nothing, zero. Sometimes people ask me, you are a scientist, I did a PhD in cell genetics. Why suddenly you left all that as seems supposedly a promising career, I don't know, might have been a complete flop, but anyway, was going okay until I finished my PhD to become a Buddhist practitioner first, and then when I was 30, I became a monk, yes. Well, first of all, I didn't slam the door on science. I didn't left science because for me, science is the rigorous pursuit of knowledge. I was trying to know more about the mind and the Uh, what it is uh, to achieve inner freedom from mental poisons, different science. After so many years, I'm certainly not enlightened. 
but I have a real clear picture of how the mind works. So I just changed the field of application. of a horizon that cannot be reached is the idea of studying consciousness from the outside. Now, from the inside, uh, there's no such problem because you're not trying to step out of consciousness. You go so deep within consciousness that actually you can experience pure consciousness, the bare faculty to know. There is something at the depth of consciousness that is pure awareness you can get deeper than that. Meditation aims at getting an aspect of the mind that is perfectly lucid, perfectly clear, where there's no gap between perception and reality, where you see phenomena as appearing yet empty of reality, as impermanent, as interdependent, where you see beneath the movement of thought is pure, self-illuminating, non-dual awareness, so that you require the maximum clarity, limpidity of the mind, like a blue, perfectly immaculate sky is getting to the very core of the basic nature of consciousness. difference between the Western way of looking at consciousness and the Buddhist way is that they primarily focused on the inside view. We, by and large, in the West, since particularly Galileo, scientific revolution, we said, let's remove subjective from the world. That was the step of Galileo, and that gives rise to science, because let's just focus on the objective things we can all agree on. I now realize, as a mature man, much better why I first became interested as a scientist to study consciousness. And ultimately, I think my reason was to rebel against this feeling of cosmic indifference. I felt that consciousness ultimately could not be explained by science. I have two conflicting impulses. So I see an Ach, in my brust. 
right? Very much so. So on the one hand, I, I was very much a scientist. I love science. I love looking and finding confirmation of order in the natural, in the, in the natural universe. That's why I'm a scientist ultimately, because I do believe that by a rational process, we can understand what this universe is made out of and what we, we made out of and why we're here. On the other hand, I grew up as a, as a devout believer. And I wanted to reconcile. Those are obviously conflicting things, and I wanted to reconcile them. So on the one hand, I thought, well, consciousness, science, you know, science is going gonna, is gonna to not be able to explain that, finally. And then finally, I have a justification for why I believe in a soul. But then as I did it more and more and thought about it more and more, I said, no, this isn't, I don't need a soul. I don't need the classical sort of, uh, you know, traditional um, and religious Cartesian soul. I think you can, you can explain the strange aspect of consciousness, you know, the subjectivity, um, using physical, natural uh, laws. You have to extend what we know about the universe a little bit, but uh, you can explain consciousness without removing this wonderful aspect of consciousness that it is a feeling. It cannot just be reduced to my nuance in my brain. approaching consciousness just like in the story with the blind man and the elephant where everyone had a different perspective of what this elephant might be we have learned over the last few decades that under the ground a forest like this these trees will be connected and will be talking right now probably whispering about what I'm talking about. The field of bioacoustic is just at its infancy and we still know very little, but we know that trees and plants are not only able to detect sounds from their environment, but would also produce their own sounds. Yes, the trees do. The incredible amount of data that is emerging in the field of um, plant behavior and communication is uh, obviously pointing at more uncomfortable questions <laughs> of whether plants are actually sentient, intelligent, conscious. To be sentient means that you are perceiving, sensing, responding subjectively. And that is the key word. We have plenty of data to show that plants perceive, sense, respond. So they definitely do that. And the, the real question that I often ask myself is like, can you do this in any other way that is not subjective? Because to do it non-subjectively means that you're doing it objectively, which really means that you're an object. But object, don't feel, don't perceive, don't respond. (laughs) 
the new lab that I'm setting up here at the University of Sydney. It's called the BI lab, and it stands for Biological Intelligence. And really is my little smirk to the AI people, so artificial intelligence. We are kind of comfortable in considering technology as becoming intelligent and even conscious. We talk about robots as if they are alive, and yet we are not prepared to talk about plants as if they are alive. It's definitely not considering the question of intelligence or consciousness for these others worthy of discussion. My pee is out. <laughs> Oh, I can see the roots. Excellent. The plant is directing the root into the channel here, which is exactly the one that is taken into the water. So the the previous experiment with the bees looking for water using sound was quite straightforward. The pea was growing inside a maze, which was the shape of a letter Y upside down. And when I just placed real water at one end of the maze, the pea grew its root straight away, which is not surprising because they use the humidity gradient to detect the, the source of water. Now, I then did what we do with animal studies and design a playback experiment. So I actually recorded the sound of water in the pipe and I played it back by attaching a little speaker, a vibration speaker and an iPod, which would play back the sound of water. And what I found is that the peas would also be able to find the source of water uh, through the sound, even when water really is nowhere to be found. It's the sound of the one. The oneness. They're showing the plant growing. How fast forwarding it. Yeah. Showing it growing very fast. Yeah. It's touch. So we're going to set up the EPG, which is equivalent of the EEG mm -hmm. for the little P. Oh, uh, yeah. It is. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not touching it. That's amazing. Yeah. I was a few centimeters away. So I see you. <laughs> okay. She's not touching the plant, but the plant is... So one of the experiments I did is um, testing Pavlovian learning in plants, specifically peas. And um, it's following pretty much the same... Uh, 
testing protocol that we use in animals and specifically the Pavlovian protocol with the dog. So in the case of Pavlov, he used a bell, which was always preceding the arrival of dinner. And in response to that, the dog will salivate because they're excited about the arrival of dinner. But repeating these long enough or times enough, the bell on his own, even when there is no dinner coming, will make the dog salivate. Now, plants don't salivate. <laughs> and uh, I didn't use a bell, but instead of a bell, I used a little fan. And instead of dinner, I used light. Now, this is actually blue light because the peas really like that. And what they do, a blue light, they grow towards it, so they bend. If you repeat these enough times, in this case for three days, you will find that the fan alone, without the light even arriving, will make the pea bend in the right direction. The fan didn't mean anything, but the plant somehow has learned the association between these two. And uh, just like the dog, the pea is passing the test with flying colors. experiment was received with great resistance because it was really the first one to show that yeah plants can learn and they can tick all the same boxes that we would expect from an animal a lot of the comments that i received were never about the data which is the you know that's the foundation of science it's like nobody ever actually said to me you did this experiment wrong the data are not good it was always about this cannot be. That is the concept, even the idea that a plant could learn. It was almost disturbing. So what is it about brain and neurons that is so special that without them you can't be conscious? What brain and neurons are really doing is passing through signals of electrical nature. Well, plants are really good at electrical signaling. <laughs> So does that mean the plants are more conscious? I think that they have more genes that they're coding for that kind of exchange of information internally. So does it mean that they are even better than we are at this consciousness business? They're doing all of the things that we think you can only do if you do have a brain and neurons, but they're doing them.
Yo soy de una comunidad, yo tengo mis plantas medicinales, yo los trabajo, hablo con ellos, ¿no? Las plantas también escuchan, tienen, no como nuestros ojos, no como nuestros oídos, pero es una cosa perceptiva. Y entonces cuando tú miras las plantas, ellas sienten. Cuando tú los vas a cortar, empiezan a mover, aunque no haya viento, empiezan a mover, a bailar, como si bailaran las plantas, porque sienten que ya los vas a cortar. Para mí las plantas todas son sagradas, pero hay plantas maestras. En la mañana se cortan las plantas de poder. Por ejemplo, el tabaco. Para que te cure, tienes que cortarlo cuando el sol apenas sale. Porque tiene toda la energía. La energía de la vida. Y las plantas, claro que se comunican. En mi experiencia en las plantas, a veces en visiones, a veces en sueños, ellos tienen unas luces. La energía, yo he visto, es como un hilo de la araña, tan delgado, así muchos hilos, pero muchos así, transparentes o como brillo de, de como el, cuando ves el arco iris, así como gotitas de agua que refleja el sol, a veces son así los rocíos de la mañana, pero hilos delgados, entonces así se conectan las plantas, así se comunican y así está tejido el, la energía. Eso para mí son sagradas, cosas que no es de todos los días se ve eso. Solo cuando el corazón está conectado. Now there's a hummingbird taking the nectar out of the flowers. Modern science seems to be coming around in a circle. The voices of plants that the shamans have listened to for millennia, we can record them now in a lab with a laser. A lot of my research has been inspired by knowledge that was shared by indigenous people with me. And it was directly opened up by the experience with the plants. 
often it comes through dreams. And in a traditional indigenous knowledge perspective, uh, this is nothing unusual. <laughs> a lot of um, shamans uh, get their information through the dream world. Uh, but for a scientist to get the information for the dream world looks weird. It requires an opening up to a space where intuition lives. Now they're showing somebody in an MRI machine. Watching the MRI scan. When we launched our first psilocybin study, no such study had been done for decades. Psilocybin is the active principle in the so-called magic mushroom. And it is a classic psychedelic or hallucinogen drug used for thousands of years by indigenous cultures for religious or divinatory or healing purposes. These drugs provide a very unique window into the nature of consciousness. on mushrooms telling her experience. And that's the doctor and the science people are recording it uh, with their technology as well. Yeah. And as that metronome swings up and down, I'm bouncing backwards into time. Like I'm 
being connected to like a collective knowledge base and I'm learning about myself and about what is. These experiences looked like experiences that have been reported over the ages by mystics and religious figures. There's a sense of unity of all people and things, the sense that everything is interconnected. And that's accompanied by a sense of deep reverence for that experience. Some people describe it as homecoming. There's something that they knew to be true all along, and it's a remembering. And that's one of the powerful pieces of the truth value of this experience when we say it's more real and more true than everyday waking consciousness. You ready for a few ratings? Zero, not at all. 10 being the strongest imaginable. Distance from normal reality. Six. Pure being and pure awareness. Five. Fusion of your personal self into a larger whole. Four. Everything okay? Warm enough? Yeah, warm enough. Okay. You're doing beautifully, Justine. See you in a little bit? Yeah. Okay. She's doing great. Great. Yeah, I mean, look at pure being and pure awareness, five. Fusion of your personal self into a larger whole, four. Sense of reverence or sacredness, five. Eight for timelessness. So, yeah, so we may have some touch of a mystical experience here. We brought people back a month later or two months later and interviewed them. We have anywhere from 70 to 80 percent of people saying that this is in the top five most meaningful experiences of their life with with respect to spiritual significance in our first study we had 30 percent of people saying it was the single most spiritually significant experiences of their entire life and when and when you'd ask well what does that mean you know you're saying this is in the top five what does that really mean to you? People would kind of look off and say, you know, when my first child was born, that changed my entire life. You know, my life would never be the same. And uh, and my father recently passed away, and that's hugely moving. And so, you know, it's kind of like that. And so that's the metric that they're using, these huge experiences that uh, that every everyone has but this is occurring in a single 6 hour session in a in a session room at Johns Hopkins <laughs> i have i've have worked at Johns Hopkins for over 40 years <laughs> i work long hours and i work more than 5 days a week and i can't say i've had one of the most you know top 5 experiences in my life there at Hopkins.
most meaningful sessions that I had in the study. I felt the energy of people that have been close to me that have passed away in a way that is maybe hard to describe, but is very convincing to me um, that it was these certain people. Um, so that's one way that it really strengthened my belief in, in the afterlife and whatever that means, you know, whether that means that your energy cannot be ever destroyed. And that's a part of that connective thread that is, is binding all of us, um, in, in the world, all people and things. I felt as though the experience was preparing me for things that I know will happen in my life that will be tough. I'm being pushed on a gurney down a hallway. What I can see is ceiling tiles going by very, very quickly and industrial lights. And I know that I'm in a hospital and something is not, is not right. I can smell the anesthetic hospital smell and things are very chaotic around me. Just commotion and concern. But all I can feel is safety and the loving feeling that's cradling me in that moment. And I know I'm learning now for an experience in the future. And that I'm being prepared that when that happens, when that moment happens, I'll remember this. Remember that I'm safe and it'll be okay. Since we began this work, we have conducted research in over 600 psilocybin sessions. Just recently, our group at Johns Hopkins and a group at New York University co-published studies in which we administered a moderately high dose of psilocybin to cancer patients who met clinical criteria for a very significant anxiety or depression. And most importantly, the measures of depression go markedly down. And for the most part, people felt much more comfortable with the prospect of facing death. And these effects appear to endure. People do not come out of that experience saying, oh, now I believe in heaven. 
you know, now I believe in life after death. But it's not uncommon for people to come out uh, entertaining in a way that they perhaps didn't previously, that there's there's there could possibly be continuity of something. Sometimes when Western visitors come here, they expect that all our young monks in the school will meditate. But basically, meditation is not considered to something for beginners. You don't go to a mindfulness course here. Meditation means cultivating in Sanskrit. Cultivating altruistic love, loving kindness, compassion. So it's not just sitting there and looking in the sky and emptying your mind. Meditation actually comes pretty late because it's dealing with the basic nature of your mind. And if you're not prepared, what are you going to do? Sometimes they kill it, you know, half a century in the Himalaya, along the Chuk. Himalaya, Tumbo, Darjeeling, Chitan, Begia. Joshua, they do not go to me. Oh, Yeah, they must have some, must 
Talking about letting the thoughts go, calming the mind.
Meditation is the tried and true course for understanding the nature of mind, and psilocybin is the crash course. We often speak in terms of ego and self being dissolved acutely by psilocybin and some of these meditation practices. That's actually the objective of most Buddhist practices, to recognize that you are not the self and that so often in our cultures that we've come to identify ourselves with that voice in our head that says, I'm going to get up, I see the morning. As one meditates more deeply, it becomes very apparent that that sense of self can drop away And that experience alone can be totally transformative. So we'll have this top over your head. It's like an antenna. Hey, Jane Rowland. Just uh, wanted to know how you're doing in there. (laughs) Okay, that's what we want to (laughs) hear. One perspective on what happens with psychedelics from a neuroscience point of view is the influence of psychedelics on something called the default mode network, a function of brain that underlies ego or sense of self. People with clinical depression have increased sense of ego and one of the things that psychedelics do psilocybin and lsd is to decrease functioning default mode network in other words decrease egoic function there can be a sense of the melting away of a sense of self or person personality if you will and emerging with something uh, greater than that so acutely you'll get decreases in the sense of self, but concurrently a much greater interconnectivity in the brain and the opportunity for rewiring and new connections forming is really quite substantial. One of the common features of this decreased sense of self is just a greater uh, openness and a greater freedom of choice. And so that emerges from psychedelics. It emerges in meditation because one of the characteristics is an open-mindedness and a, a freedom from habitual response. And it looks very much like uh, patterns that we see in childhood before those narratives get locked in and that sense of self gets locked in. So this openness has huge implications for healing. I wouldn't hesitate a second to say that the Hopkins experiment was a completely life-changing experience. Why would something uh, synthesized by mushrooms do something so dramatic to the human brain? And in fact, what what does it do was the question in part. And um, I participated about 10 years ago in a study um, which gave a small number of subjects like me, uh, 
various concentrations of psilocybin in a very controlled environment in which we were coached to be open to whatever happened in our brain. <laughs> Ten years later, I still regard it as, in fact, even more so regard it as the most significant experience I've ever had. At the time I did this, I was in the more or less immediate aftermath of a really tragic death. My son died by suicide. Mm-hmm. He went through different forms of drugs from alcohol to ecstasy to LSD to cocaine to heroin. Mm. And... Uh, one night, I just got a call that he had shot himself to death. Oh. My son's death had left me so raw and so uh, in need of working through certain things. So I regarded the whole psilocybin experiment as at least potentially a way to come to some further terms with that. I went into it with a good deal of skepticism. I wasn't in any, certainly not in any institutional way religious, nor really a believer in much of any sense. As a Philosopher, as a professor of philosophy, I knew a lot about the history of theology, but didn't feel a great deal of personal participation in. So I went into the whole thing quite prepared for a big zero on the spiritual side. Roland and Mary coached me a lot. Regarding the whole experience as a kind of space traveler, a kind of astronaut, where you're going to get blasted out into some possibly scary place by yourself. Okay. So, Rick, just begin by taking a couple deep breaths. journey through some kind of cosmic roller coaster, a deep sea diver descending into the ocean depths. I even had the illusion of pressure and darkness. Traveling through the ocean. And I was so gratified to feel the touch of Mary's hand, although it felt as though she's in some little boat hundreds of feet, if not miles, above me. But even that didn't suffice to orient me. I seriously wondered, am I alive or am I dead? I couldn't make out. 
And at one point I thought, oh my God, I've, I, I've become a heroin addict myself. I'm in some kind of mania of sympathy and grief for Oliver's death. I have experimented with drugs and here I am in some kind of overdose. But I maintained a weird clarity of mind at the same time as I was able to observe from some position that was undisturbed while the rest of my entire reality fell apart. I felt at times as though I was hearing music for the first time. It felt like the heartbeat of reality itself. And it became clear that that something like that is the very essence of life. That is to say, life is about trying to open oneself in a kind of loving acceptance and an engagement or a pure openness to experience. That's the point, rather than fear and defense. What remains if ego or self dissolves completely? What remains is this sense of awareness, this sense of witness, this sense of awakenedness. And so ego can dissolve entirely, sense of self can dissolve entirely, and yet you can be fully aware that you're aware. And there's something sacred about that. Some people might describe it as a void. Some people might describe it as a white light. But there's this state of pure awareness. And we're leaning deeply, as deeply as we can, into this existential mystery of what it is that we're doing here. I changed my research direction and my career, really, because of something that happened in the field with my fish. I was trained as a marine scientist, and I did most of my research, early research with um, coral reef fishes. And then one day, as part of uh, my experiment, um, I was in the water, and after spending months with these particular individuals, you know, which I knew personally, I would say, as one-on-one relationship built over over time. Uh, There they um, fished just uh, until the day before would come inside my hands and I could close my hands around them and they were like, we know 
this is just Monica. She comes every day and it's all good. That day, nobody came out. And the only thing that was different that day was that I went in the water with the thought of finishing my experiments and collecting them all, which obviously it wasn't a good ending for them. In that moment when nobody came out to greet me as they did for days and days, for months, I just realized that this fish knew about me much more than I knew about me. They showed me what it really means to have empathic relationships. In that moment, I realized that there are no boundaries. We think we have our private lives inside our minds, but in reality, we are immersed in this ocean where all boundaries are quite fictitious. The experience for me changed my entire career because uh, I realized that there was no questions that I could ask that would be important enough or special enough to justify me taking someone else's life. That's when the plants came and rescued the scientists in me. We see the world as separate from us and we see things, not beings. And so the moment we appreciate what consciousness really is, this one big ocean that expresses itself through different forms and shapes, then as the plants have taught me many times, what you see is just you. You wouldn't hurt yourself. You wouldn't kill yourself. You wouldn't destroy anything. You wouldn't behave as we do in our environment because that is you too. que despertar que estamos dormidos tenemos que tomar ya la conciencia de la vida para mí lo sagrado es todas las cosas hay mucha gente que cree que solo el humano piensa no para el mundo indígena no es así tiene todo la esencia igual que todos. The shaman lady is in a sacred cave talking to the cave walls and the spirits in the cave. Yo he peregrinado en el desierto que lo tengo así como tan impregnado que, 
que nadie me lo puede quitar es el, es el infinito silencio. Es tan profundo que no se puede describir el color, el, como la respiración. Es, es muy Pero es muy infinito, ¿no? Es como, soy una energía también especial, como, como una planta, como una lagartija en el desierto, como una piedra en el desierto, como un arbusto. También soy de ese tejido. I'm now a panpsychist. So panpsychist comes from the word pan, everywhere, and psyche, soul. And it's an ancient faith. So many philosophers in the Western tradition have had it, including Plato and Spinoza and Schopenhauer. But of course, it's very prevalent if you look, for example, Buddhist faith, that many more creatures may be in soul than we think. Most people are willing to say, okay, a monkey is conscious, and maybe a cat and a dog, but it peters out very quickly after that. But mm -mm. squid, probably not. Bees, haven't said they're just bugs, right? But we really don't know. A bee has a brain that's roughly a million neurons, far smaller than us. However, its complexity, it's much denser, 10 times denser than the neurons in the human brain. Many biologists, particularly who think about consciousness, believe it's an emergent property. The classical one is wetness of water. I can take a liquid like, like water and it's wet. You know, I can pour it over my clothes and I know what wet is. Now, if I ask is one molecule of H2O isn't wet, it doesn't have those properties, or two molecules of H2O. So, but at some point, if you put enough molecules together, they have this property of wetness. They cling to surfaces and they have tension, etc. So people think, well, you have one or two neurons, you don't get consciousness. 42, you don't. But, you know, if you have a billion, you get some. And if you have two billion, you get more. So it's just an emergent property. I used to think that. But then consciousness is just too radically different from anything else I know. Conscious experience, subjectivity, feelings are too radically different from anything else in the universe for me to accept that it just emerges. Max Planck, the father of quantum physics, said in the late 20s, I regard consciousness as fundamental. I concur. It's not something first your physics, and then if you have enough physics, then somehow you get consciousness. Consciousness is a fundamental feature of the universe.
Does the fish know that they're in water? Do we really recognize that we're swimming in this sea of consciousness all the time? In our culture, often that's not the case. We're so caught up in achievement and our own stories and acquisition of material objects that define us that we lose track of the fact that we're afloat in this sea of consciousness. Psilocybin is one very powerful doorway into that recognition. Some people are already awake to the vastness and the wonder, but other people, it's their first awakening to a different way of experiencing and being in the world. It's not the drug. The drug helps you to open the door, but the drug isn't what's outside the door. The question is how much of reality you can take. Ordinarily, the function of our mental apparatus is to close down the opening, like closing down the aperture of a camera, to the tightest, most restrictive aperture so that you're not flooded, so you're not overwhelmed. And psilocybin is an aperture opener and massively exposes. I felt like I was being miraculously exposed to my own life. I had enormously powerful experiences visually of what seemed to be an immensity of space. Then the experience would reopen as if you're already at the infinite. And suddenly that would open again to an infinite beyond the infinite. And that was the moment when the astronaut metaphor came back. I thought, yeah. Something like exploration, something like the pure adventure of going out with as open eyes as possible to drink in what is new and strange. That's the whole purpose and aim of our existence. Consciousness is nothing but this openness. Traditionally, we think of God as the end point of the journey. God is the destination. And it suddenly rolls over me again. No, God is not the destination. God is the journey. It's the openness itself that is divine. Which then led me to this massive realization that God is seeing through our eyes. That God's on the adventure. That God, in a certain sense, is the ultimate astronaut himself. 
that without us seeing these strange visions, he doesn't get to see anything. And without us feeling things, he doesn't feel anything. Without us going through the experiences of life, he doesn't go through life. In other words, that we are the proxies uh, for God's own life. Uh, and this was a, to me, so uh, new um, a perspective that I, I was I was kind of shocked by it. And I realized if God truly grants freedom, he doesn't know the outcome of those free acts. He is on the adventure more than anyone. The gift of freedom necessitates that God is truly open to what's going to come out. And it also made me realize, of course, this is the only possible meaning of love. Love is such an adventure of freedom where you take the risk of openness to the other, including the possibility of being disappointed, of being wounded. over me of a revelation, I thought of my son. He came to me, and not just his presence, but a kind of electric, vivid, intense presence. I could not but imagine it alive and imagine it as his core being. In his absence, in this ultimate absence, I found him again. It came to me to realize that maybe in this sense nothing ever dies. His essence, his kind of distilled essence could survive death, at least in my heart. That triggered another whole wave where I thought to myself, maybe this is why this life is so filled with failures and tragedies and losses that love requires these failures, its own failures. Um, its own losses. Love, perhaps, uh, in this very mysterious way, requires death in order to um, sort of purify itself, which, you know, in any other time, I would have regarded as a completely crazy thought. Um, or I would have regarded it in another time and place as a kind of, not just silly religious thought, but maybe almost a despicable thought of making light of what is terrible 
and tragic, uh, sugar-coating it and uh, making it appear acceptable. What isn't acceptable? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. What is... with psychedelic plants is a moment of communion with the infinite just the same as maybe the poets would have written about it forever anybody who has had those experiences know exactly what they are and they touch our soul so deeply that the mind has no chance to try to explain the heart is listening and the heart already knows. When we're having these mystical experiences, whether it's like through meditation or psychoactive plants or yoga, the place that we're touching is always the same. Because there is only one place here. That's what I would call consciousness. It's not a thing. It's a space. And that's where we go when we allow it. I think this ability to directly connect with this universal consciousness, whatever we want to call it, um, God, um, it's actually not a, a special thing, but it's, uh, it's our heritage. It's not something that um, only some people can achieve. It's our heritage as human beings. And it's, again, just a matter of choices. But it's, we are all the same. We are, we have, we are made of the same. We come from the same. We are the same. And so we all have exactly the same opportunity for the same choices if we want them to. Which is, of course, compared to what the, a religious system would offer, <laughs> uh, it would be exactly the opposite. Someone has the control of your experience of yourself as God. I had dreams in my home in Australia pointing to specific places and people. Then I went and looked for them. And that's how I ended up working with an elder who taught me a lot about the plants that he uses to heal his people.
travel to this very remote area of Mexico to learn from the witch hollers because they are such a ancient culture and their entire culture is founded and closely related to one psychedelic plant, the peyote. The relationship with these plants seems fundamental for them to survive in this remote region, not just physically, but also spiritually, and find the direct connection to their divine essence. They're in a sacred circle calling in the sacred energies of mescalito. What's happening now is we're looking at a sacred cow. And now I have to deal with my conflict. I see a stressed animal that knows exactly what is going to happen. And um, and I actually really hope he's going to fight. And it's actually interesting because... Um, just like in our society, I don't feel I have a choice that I can stand just on my own and uh, and stop this. It's going to happen regardless. And I have to let it happen. And this is where my conflict is. Under all of these layers, I'm actually wearing a T-shirt that says, Treat, tread lightly, eat kindly. It's like it's, this is seriously a really funny joke from life. (laughs) 
wave coming in. Yeah. There are two, two cows in hanging out on the beach with, with the Indian guy yeah. photographer. <laughs> There's a Buddhist saying, which I think physicists will agree, that a million cows cannot bring to existence something that does not exist in any way, out of nothing. There's always a transformation. So according to Buddhist way of seeing things, the stream the continuum of consciousness can only be beginningless and endless. Now, what will happen when we die? The atoms of my body will disintegrate, but they are not going to disappear. So similarly, the stream of consciousness made of moment of consciousness being a continuum, unbroken continuum, but without entity traveling. Me, you are traveling there the young Matthew, you know, become the old Matthew, I'm going to die, maybe reincarnate in a little cow. So, the, <laughs> but something it is still Matthew in that cow and all that. Okay. So that Buddhism doesn't accept that. There's no self being autonomous and uh, permanent that travels along the consciousness. There's just the successions of moment that is never interrupted. It's like a stream. The Mississippi River, the Rhine River, there's no something, a core, that is really the essence of the Rhine River. It's just the endless succession of flow of the river that you call Rhine, and rightly so, because it's not the same as the Ganges. If we see consciousness just as this ocean, then my essence as me right now is just a part of that ocean. And in that sense, I will continue. I don't die because I'm already everything as it is, concentrated into this little drop. If I do see myself as separate from that ocean, then I will die. This question about the nature of awareness, the nature of this sense of the interconnectedness and the sacredness of that, this is not going to be answered in my lifetime. It's not going to be answered in my grandchild's lifetime. This is a much deeper question. It may never be answerable. 
I love contemplating that? Do I love studying that? And I think that deeper understanding of that has very profound implications for how we're going to end up treating one another and how we're going to survive as a species. This mechanistic view is dying and we really need to move into a more unifying view. And inevitably, I think the message is always the same. It's like, uh, just remember that you are part of this. And the illusion that you are separate from this it's it's just that an illusion and actually i think what is really um beautiful about it is that that longing that feeling of um aloneness that most of us carry uh in those moments just really disappears because you're not alone you never were and you are you cannot be alone oh.
the end of the beginning of over and over again. That was really good, Rama. Yeah, I'm sorry if folks couldn't um, understand in some places. Well, it was mostly a meditation anyway. Yeah. But you'll send that to Penny, right? Yes. And then, you know, you can get on the list. Penny's got a list. How do they do that, Rama? They go to... Um, Oh, I'm. Well, we'll talk on the conference call. Yeah. Maybe you can put it out there somewhere if Patty wants it, and then we. Can, yeah. yeah. You can sign up. We are only one of us here, everyone. I would say that it's a very interesting time. Uh, as you know, if you're watching, everybody knows that the uh, empire is collapsing. Over. It's over. Well, it's collapsing. Yeah. In front of our very eyes. And it's really important there is no blame. No. Blame does not exist. That's an illusion. And because there's only one of us here, and we've got some renegades running around. We just, uh, we see the reflection of that in, in us at some point. Uh, there is a divine plan. I think I'll spend uh, these last little moments reading, um, uh, um, um, Aurora Ray, she had something to say today. Here we go. We are so very close to our divine destiny. And divine destiny is within us right now. We are experiencing the most magnificent, magical, and miraculous journey ever. We are on the verge of discovering our divine purpose for being here. This discovery will bring us into a life that is characterized by unconditional love, joy, and abundance. Get ready for the most magnificent, magical, and miraculous journey of our lives. Today, I'd like to share some exciting news with you all. We are so very close to our divine destiny. And divine destiny is within us right now. We are experiencing the most magnificent, magical, and miraculous journey ever. We are on the verge of discovering our divine purpose. That's repeating itself. That's okay. For being here, for having incarnated, for being given the opportunity to experience all levels of human consciousness. 
This discovery will bring us into a life that is characterized by unconditional love, joy, and abundance. We have already begun this magnificent journey by connecting with our inner intelligence, which is the cluster of infinite possibilities contained within every cell in our bodies. This magnificent journey will take us through many periods of disclosure. Just did some of that tonight. And transmutation until we finally reach our true calling in life, which is to be of service to the whole of creation for our highest good. This is what all souls desire in life, to be of service to our one creator through our higher selves who have been awakened within us during this time of transformation. This is an awesome time for us all to be more aware of how we are all connected as one whole soul creation. We can become more aware of how we all simultaneously being created in the presence of our sacred spiritual soul and God's love and how we can all, how we are all connected to our spiritual, our spiritual heart and the loving essence of our divine selves. I am in this frequency of love with all of you. You have been preparing for this time for many lifetimes as you felt your connection to spirit grow stronger and stronger. You have been working with your higher self daily as well as with our Galactic Federation and other teachers who have been guiding you along this path of enlightenment and ascension into higher frequencies. You are on your way, my beloved ones. Your higher self has guided you through many lifetimes as your soul's journey evolved over time until now. And what an amazing journey it was. So many lessons were learned along the way as well as experiences that help prepare you for what is coming next. The Galactic Federation has sent ambassadors who are here to transform each of us into more conscious beings. Don't be surprised that we're that, everybody. That's me talking. These ambassadors have been sent to help us open up to receiving this information with an open heart and mind. With this knowledge, we will be able to make changes in our lives that will allow us to continue on our path into the light. The light is calling us to awaken, to love ourselves and the whole of creation. 
and to embrace our inner divinity, which will lead us to a life of purpose, passion, and self-expression. Ultimately, the journey of ascension is truly a gift, and there is no need to worry about how to get it. It is something that gives us the opportunity and the ability to help form a new world, a world based on cooperation and love. So whether you're just starting out on your journey or you're already experiencing Mm -hmm. profound spiritual changes in your life, keep in mind that everything will eventually become clear as our as our consciousness continues continues to ascend and as we move into a brand new phase of our spiritual development the bottom line is that there's a whole new world out there a world that the unified field of infinite potential is your reality, our reality. And nothing is impossible. One day, we'll all look back on this time of unrest and realize that it was all part of the process. We know we are on the right path as life gets more exciting by the day until we reach a state of sublime peace and harmony in which we live in peace with all beings. The realization will finally draw on us that all events were orchestrated by our higher selves to prepare us, excuse me, to propel us forward toward our divine destiny. Once we realize the true nature of reality, and that creation is governed by an intelligent force, an intelligent universal flowing force in the heart, mind, and soul, we can then say to ourselves, okay, it's all good. When taking on challenges and seeking to go beyond the mind of limitation. From this perspective, consciousness allows us to be in harmony with the creation as a whole. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. We are the Galactic Federation. Aurora Ray, ambassador of the Galactic Confederation. What do you think, Rom? Uh, I'll just say that um Very soon now, the captain will be giving us a briefing about the next few steps. Don't be surprised if Master Yoda is with him. (laughs) (laughs) Good idea. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. It is time to take a little break, everybody. (sighs) Ah. 
this uh, energy of the time and the season has certainly um, uh, been depicted by sharing together this this piece. Thank you, Rama, for choosing that one to do today. Yeah. And uh, thank you, Gaia TV, for providing these things for all of us to listen to. So namaste for now, and we're going to take a look at the stars. Talk to our brother Richard, and Micah made a comment to me the other day that Ayurvedic astrology is uh, more precise by 27 degrees. And I've been told this, and Mother said it too. When there is a consensus by all of humanity, there is an energy that is depicted that is has a value. So what we can say is we can glean both and and take a little look about that self that guy. In the Western astrology I'm a Leo. <clears throat> In the Western astrology, Rama is on the cusp of Cancer and Leo. Mm-hmm. In Ayurvedic astrology and Ophiuchian astrology as well, we are both Cancers, which is very interesting. Whereas also Rama is more connected to the cusp of Gemini Cancer because it moves back a sign. And it's not a backwards move, <laughs> Again, it's about the both and of it. And we can take a look at different parts of ourselves that way. So, namaste. We'll be back here, 1015. We'll be on our way to look at the stars. Namaste. Namaste. That was Bob Marley, Krishna Das, Om Namah Shivaya. I pass the talking stick to you, Richard. Richard? Hello? Are you there, Richard? All right, all right. I just heard you on the Internet. Call for me. Oh. Okay. All right. (laughs) Greetings, Commander. Uh, Back at you, sister. (laughs) All right, it's December the 10th. All right, we're 10 days from the winter solstice. Yeah, sun's in... We might be 11 degrees, let me see here. Yeah, we're 11 uh, 11 days from the winter solstice. The sun's at 19 Sag today, and Mercury is at 7 Capricorn, and Venus is at 2 Capricorn. And Mars is still retrograde, and it's at 16 Gemini. So all the major influences are on one half, on one side of the solar system. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And the, the next big event 
maybe check this out here. Uh, it's going to be conjunctions with Pluto. Pluto is a 28 Capricorn. And um, everything else is pretty much where it's been all month. Uh, Saturn is at uh, 21 Aquarius. Jupiter's at 30 degrees Pisces, direct. All right. Yeah, Jupiter is in the last degree of the last. And that will be interesting. See if uh, see if uh, Kaipacha reads that one tonight or today or whatever. Uranus is at sixteen and Taurus and still retrograde. Neptune twenty three. So Neptune's at twenty three and Jupiter's at thirty. There's only seven degrees between them. Mm. So that's a concentration point involving Neptune and Jupiter and in uh, in some ways I would suggest that that's the the driving energy for for the events that we're we humans are experiencing here on Earth. Mm. Is that is that late Pisces with those two powerful planets there, right? Saturn's you know off, you know a little bit off, you know, but even the even the the spacing between Saturn at, at twenty one and. Neptune at twenty three, they're thirty they're thirty degrees, thirty one degrees apart. See. So there's a little bit of space in there. Now we got the T square going on here, Sun opposite Mars and and, and square that Neptune. Alright. And then we've got well the moon today happens to be coming up with an opposition to Pluto. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Moon at 22 and Pluto at 28. So we're going to have moon opposite Pluto here tomorrow. And Uranus is uh, in its regular old place there, hanging out. Doesn't move fast. It's retrograde. Pluto only it's backing up two minutes of arc per day. So it's like staying for a, over 20 days, almost 30 days in a degree, in each degree as it retrogrades at that very slow speed. That's because it's way out on the edge of the universe, of the solar system. Uh, the node, the north node, at 12, Taurus. And Chiron at 13, Aries. 
that's probably causing some of this trouble too. You take 13, yeah, you take thirteen Aries, and it was just trying the activities in Sagittarius, right? The sun trined Chiron exactly earlier in the week. And, uh, it's sextile. It's coming into a sextile to Mars as Mars backs up. Chiron's also backing up, but but Mars Mars is backing up uh, 23 minutes a day. And Chiron is backing up less than a minute of arc per day. But that'll be coming up here in the, in the next few weeks. All right. I think that's all that sets us up. we got our orientation. We've done our navigation. We know where we are. And we know where the local interference is coming from. So if you're going to go flying, don't fly in the direction of 23 to 30 degrees of Pisces. Don't fly in that direction. No. <laughs> I mean, what? what is, what thousands of planet Earth can fit inside of Jupiter. I forget what that exact number is. It's a lot. It's a big, it's a big number. That's the second most powerful influence after the sun. Mm-hmm. And then Saturn, don't fly in the direction of Aquarius. <laughs> there's, a wall, there's a wall over there. There's a wall of energy pushing back. All right. Oh. All right, well, I'm done for now. Okay, here we go. Pacha with Weekly Pele Report for December 7th of 2022. How's it going out there? We've got the full moon horizon. I feel, no, I see a bad moon horizon. That could be the uh, theme song for today because it's conjunct Mars. Mars is bad. <laughs> At the exact same degree, uh, you know, 16 degrees, uh, you know, like two minutes. And Mars is up there like 16 degrees, 15, 16 minutes of Gemini. The, the sun is at 16 degrees, two minutes of Sagittarius. So, wow, it's not just a full, this is no ordinary full moon, okay? This is power packed. And uh, you'll be feeling it now, and you'll be feeling it for a couple of days, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you know, kind of tapering off. By Friday, we've got Venus, uh, you know, in late Sagittarius, uh, coming into a square with Jupiter in late 
Pisces, mutable signs, Sagittarius, Pisces, Venus squaring Jupiter, and then Venus goes into Capricorn, uh, you know, on Friday also. So it, you know, passes up Jupiter. Jupiter will be uh, heading, of course, into Aries pretty darn soon too, right? You know, that's, uh, that's coming up very shortly. It's in the final degrees here of Pisces, moving away from Neptune, but still got that Neptune Pisces influence. I'm going to talk a little bit about that Venus square. So the moon is going to move on from Gemini into Cancer by Friday. Cancer, Friday, Saturday, Sunday goes into Leo. In the meantime, on Saturday, she squares Chiron, trines Neptune. On Sunday, comes into an opposition with Pluto. Oh, yeah. Trine Jupiter before she goes into Leo. So we got a few different things going on this week. It's kind of a busy time, a busy week. And let me look at the camera, talk about it a little more. We do, the good news, I'd say, is, you know, it's, it's the sun moving through fiery Sagittarius is coming into a nice sextile with Saturn on Monday. Yeah. So let's just uh, hear a little bit more about it. Okay. Let's give this baby a shot. Uh, full moon in Gemini. Gemini, the sign of gadgets. Aquarius and Gemini love their gadgets, love their toys. I got myself a microphone. <laughs> yeah. So this is a test pilot program. Now I can be as far away from the camera as I want. I am a free bird, Sagittarius, loves it. I can move, I can. I could walk up the creek while I talk to you about the aspects this week. And of course, you know, I'm a little nervous. I hope it comes out. I don't have to, you know, record the Pele Report 10 different times. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get this thing to work. Anyway, what else is new? Boom. You know, right now I'm in the middle of teaching a course on the astrology of relationships. And we had a group of people that came to Costa Rica to learn astrology. And they had to travel. They had to find accommodations. They had to get some food together. They had to get some money together. Blah, 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 blah. Well, I'm doing it online. It's going to lower the price, lower the cost, make it more convenient. It's good. All, their, all the sessions are going to be recorded. You can do it at your leisure. Uh, and it's going to be four different modules. So the first one is your, your chart. The second one is comparing charts. The third one is a composite chart, putting two charts together. And the fourth one is transits to your chart, to, to their partner's chart, to the composite chart, and tying it all together. This is a whole series. It's going to go every other month, starting in January. January 7th and 8th is the first day of this new course. It will be outrageous. I mean, you'll be able to, you know, use astrology to understand yourself, your relationships, and help other people understand theirs by the time you're done with this course. Very powerful. Every other month. So, you know, two times four is going to be like eight months. 
This is really going to go on. If you'd like to check it out, the link will be below. Or you can just go to the New Paradigm Astrology website. Yeah. And it'll be right there on the home page. Check out the Astrology of Relationship online course. We're delving deep into the nature of love, sexuality, emotional connection, need for communication, past life, twin flame, soulmate, union. I mean, it is got it all. <laughs> Astrology is so phenomenal, so amazing. And this particular time right now, every full moon is this culmination from the new moon to the full moon, we're building, waxing, developing ourself, our resources, our creative expression, you know, what we have to bring to the world. And then the full moon is like the show goes on. The curtains open up. Everybody looks at us. Everybody sees us. And we enter into participation with the greater whole. And the participation with the greater whole starts, of course, with relationships, one-on-one, -on -one. business relationship, partnership. This is the seventh house, Libra, moves into Scorpio, then Sagittarius. So this full moon, okay, you may be feeling it's time to come out. It's time to emerge. And, of course, Mars being there okay, wants to come out even more powerfully, stronger, stretch your stuff, show what you got, yeah? Talk, talk up a storm with Gemini, but here's the thing, and this is a little bit about what the mantra is for this week. I also want to read to you the Sabian symbol, because these both kind of reinforce this Retrograde Mars. Retrograde Mars. Now, Mars came into Gemini in August, and it came all the way up to 25 degrees around the middle of September. Yeah? It came through where it is now, 16 degrees. And then it continued on until the end of October. October 30th or so, it's stationed. And now it's going retrograde, back over where it was in the middle of September. Think of where you were in the middle of September, what you were thinking, contracts you were signing, conversations you were having, uh, you know, classes you were designing or taking or books you were reading or think of all this intellectual, mental, even computer, social media posts. Go back to the middle of September because that was when Mars was, yeah, you know, I got new ideas, new relationships, new communication, you know, new teachings, new understanding. But then now it's retrograde and it, go, and it keeps going back. Okay, it keeps going back right up until January 11th. It goes back to eight degrees of Gemini. Then it goes direct forward again 
and it will come back to 16 degrees where it is now, only going direct, okay, February 21st. So these dates, there's a linkage here. The new moon, okay, started in Sagittarius, and we're coming around. We've got this full moon of illumination, really aha, like really light, lighting up, okay? What we want to say, what we want to do, papers we need to sign, agreements we need to make or break, communications that we need to have, relationships, networking, new business associations. I mean, it's this is all like a lot of monkey mind stuff going on. But it started in September, and now with the retrograde, review, reflect, recheck, rewrite, renegotiate, rebel, repair, rejuvenate, retrograde. Is this easy for Mars? Does Mars like to go backwards? Absolutely not. <laughs> Mars wants to charge forward, spontaneous, instinctive, impulsive. Act now, think later. <laughs> and now it's got what? Boom. It's that, that impulse is running into blocks, stops, obstacles. Wait a minute. Don't be the eternal youth of Gemini, okay? You know, don't be too spontaneous, too impulsive. Think things through. Slow down. Edit. You know, before you, you know, publish something, you need to go back and read it 10,000 times and <laughs> dot your I's and cross your T's and oh, Mars is like, uh, 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 uh. You know, this frustrated masculine energy sometimes leads to war. It leads to debates. It leads to arguments. And when the moon comes around, there are emotional arguments. The moon also has to do with the past. So this is reflecting on the past. Looking at what has gone down before, even before September. Yeah, this could be, you know going way back to the beginning of the Mars cycle when Mars was conjunct the sun over a year ago. But the interesting thing here is the Sabian symbol kind of reinforces the same kind of thing. Let's not forget, Mercury just went into Capricorn. Now Venus is going to go into Capricorn. Ruled by Saturn. Patience, endurance, maturity, objectivity, really, you know, looking at the big picture responsibly for the next seven generations. <laughs> does Mars want to do that? In Gem does Gemini want to do that? Not so much. <laughs> so... Kind of interesting. We have this powerful Saturn 
moving through Aquarius that says you need to take into account the impact of your words and your deeds on everybody. You do not live in a vacuum. You live in society. You've got community. You've got friends. Moon's going to move into cancer. You've got family. So this is a time, and now check out the Sabian symbol. The head of a robust youth changes into that of a mature thinker. The keynote is the transformation of physical vitality into the power to build concepts and intellectual formulations through which knowledge can be transferred. Channels of communication. The robust youth of Gemini matures into this Mercury, Venus, and Capricorn, Saturn, and Aquarius, right? To really transfer knowledge. While in the preceding symbol, we see the explosive release of impulses generated by a new realization of what is right and wrong, sun in Sagittarius, right? The truth, right and wrong, okay? Yeah, the, the previous symbol, let me go to the previous symbol. A woman activist in an emotional speech dramatizes her cause. Now, that's the 16th degree of Gemini. We're reading the 17th degree. The full moon is at 16 degrees, zero two minutes. So, just changed. Just changed the degree, right? So, you know, we still have this, a passionate response to a deeply felt new experience. So now we have this, you know, this shift. So, the preceding symbol is this explosive release of impulses generated by a new realization of what is right and wrong. The woman or feminine way controlled by feelings, a passionate response, right? Now we have a picture of a process of quiet and steady metamorphosis of biological energy into mind power. Mind power. Which can be symbolically seen as the male or the man way. The symbolism may seem old-fashioned today, But the two contrasting approaches to communication of new experiences remain evident, however one wishes to symbolize them. What we see pictured is the transformation of emotions into mind, of instincts into thoughts, a process 
of mental metamorphosis. So, what can we say? This is a good week to review things. This is a good week to go to a workshop. This is a good week to read a book, to meditate or contemplate. The real truth, the meaning of your life, the purpose of your life, so that your Martian actions are in alignment with a higher truth. This is the Sagittarius-Gemini full moon axis. And what we can say is, at this time, you may also be feeling this passionate, feeling, fiery moon-Mars energy. It's not just moon-Mars. Venus is square Jupiter. Jupiter can bring too many feelings. In Pisces, it can bring overwhelm. We can be psychically overwhelmed. We can be emotionally overwhelmed. We can really want to indulge or explore or dream or, you know, have so many feelings. It can be hard, okay, to just like relax sort out and really patiently pave the way for this new beginning. But it's a really great week, yeah, for communicating, for talking things over, for, you know, for new business opportunities, new business projects, you know, meeting new friends, networking, Organizing your website, putting together online courses. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's just like, this is Mars, you know, really rehashing, re-editing, rehearsing so that the play can go on. And what we're, what we're really going to see is after 111, after January 11th, when Mars goes direct, Everything that we've been editing, preparing, reading, taking in, okay, is going to like really come out. Yeah? So the, the more you, the more you review now, you know, the more you really get it together, you know, and highlight and underline and straighten and structure and mature, you know, really think through your plan, rather than rushing, headlong, charging, pushing, that's, that can lead to mistakes, that can lead to errors, that can lead to accidents, car accidents, car repairs, bicycles, trains, Gemini is, you know, short distance travel, transportation, journeys. Trouble with your neighbors. Maybe you need to rethink that lot line or that fence or those flowers. Yeah. Work things out with your neighbors. Siblings, Gemini, brothers and sisters, some family dynamics maybe coming up with this full moon. So just, you know, really 
Pura Vida. Stay calm. Salud. Have a cervezas. <laughs> Chill out. Talk things through in a nice, orderly fashion. And turn that youthful, energized, passionate youth into a mature thinker. Yeah. So, namaste. Aloha. So much love. Hello, 
there. It's Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astromorologist, and welcome to Star Codes. This is a podcast where we look at an astrology, numerology event coming up and give it meaning so we can utilize the cosmic energies for our highest good. And in this case, I love this episode because we are going to dive into Venus Square Jupiter. Venus and Jupiter are the two benefics in astrology, and when they come together in any capacity, and in this case it is a square, which is 90 degrees, there is so much potential for raising your vibration. So in this case, they are meeting up on December 8th, and they actually will impact us, this connection will impact us for the rest of the week because it truly is being magnified by the numerology code. December 8th in 2022 adds up to a universal date of 17. And 17 is the immortality number. 17 reduces to 8 as well. So we have a double 8, infinity, strength, leadership, abundance, overcoming obstacles and gaining strength as a result. And then we have the number 17 of immortality, which is indicating you are leaving a legacy behind. So by the way, this double single digit, in this case, eight and eight pattern continues throughout December. So it is a very potent high vibrational month. It will bring a lot to the surface. So, on this December 8th, 2022, we have the 178 universal date, Venus square Jupiter, which means it's going to last a long time. It's a powerful day to manifest prosperity and really understand you have internal infinite resources for all the confidence, all the taking your control back energy that you would want. And that taking your control back theme continues throughout next year, 2023 as well. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that and the reason why. So you want to really take the lead around this time and really listen to your inner voice, your innate, your intuition, because you are being made aware that you are in complete control of every facet of your life. So the living of an abundant life in a visceral way is truly the experiencing of that vibration. To take an example, that vibration of abundance and courage in all its expressions within you. It is truly a decision you make to go and tap into that abundance frequency, and then all your decisions, your thoughts, your actions will flow from that conscious decision to feel it, to be immersed in it. So Venus square Jupiter means you're very open to new emotional experiences. You're more sensitive when it comes to just connecting to others. Venus governs our intimate relationships, our close relationships. And Jupiter brings that sense of expanded awareness, seeing beyond the horizon, not being myopic, 
and judgmental, having the wisdom to really partake in a conversation without judgment. So your happiness and optimism are very much heightened at this time. Now, if you feel in any way bogged down when you're attending to bigger responsibilities, just refocus on the impact that whatever it is you're managing, doing, working on will ultimately have, right? So it's a wonderful transit for connecting to others and taking part in fun activities as well, pleasurable events, right? It is a time of the festive season, so this is a beautiful transit to have in December. What you want to guard against is over-the-top behavior, like overdoing things because Jupiter expands everything and Venus loves pleasure. So if you do that and you're negligent or in any way just overeating, overdoing, overspending, watch that as well. So the the frequencies to really engage with here are abundance and harmony and beauty, beautifying your life and truly feeling those in your heart. Now, Jupiter makes an, a very, very important shift into Venus's sign of Taurus in 2023. So this is like a preview energy of that momentous event. And the reason it's so momentous is by virtue of moving into Taurus in 2023, Jupiter will align harmoniously with many other planets, slow moving planets. And this will be really felt at that time. And of course, we're going to dive into all of that in the upcoming 2023 Ultimately forecast. That live stream actually takes place on December 14th. So you still have time to join. Just go to 2023forecast.com and watch a short video on 2023 and join me on the 14th of December for that four hour amazing event. So we are now going to look a little bit more at the square because the square in astrology has gotten sort of, you know, a, a bad connotation to it. And truly what a square is, is an activation of a battery. So if you put the four sides of a square together, they hold, they ground energy. It is the basis of a architectural home and it is the basis of manifestation. We have four directions. We have four seasons. So it is truly connected to earthing things and making them real. So any square in astrology between planets is an activation, manifestation, invitation. Now, I'm going to take it a little further here because the square also represents the cross. So if you think of the four sides and, you know, up and down, so left and right, past and future, and then higher and lower, the horizontal arms represent the past and the future or future past. So you want to bring those horizontal arms to your heart. In order for the cross not to be a cross of persecution, right, where separation, right and wrong, left paradigm, right paradigm, we always want to bring the two 
horizontal perspectives here so that you are living in neutrality. And the same about the above and the below. So one represents below the surface, the unseen, and the other represents above the surface. So we want to bring those together as well, right here in the same place, right? So that is, this place is literally the meeting point of light, the meeting point of God. This is where love resides. This is where you don't live in present, in separation. So your heart truly is that meeting point. And that's the cross within you. And you want to unify all the four sides of that cross and not hang yourself from the cross, which is what happens when you separate yourself from others and define them as either better or worse than you through judgment. That's how crucifixion happens, right? We crucify others or crucify ourselves. So the cross, right? So because we often separate ourselves into above or below, like better or worse, or we engage with the past and the future in a way that takes us out of the present, very few people actually know how to live in the present moment, which is here. You can only live in the present moment from your heart. Your heart does not know what time it is, doesn't see other, uh, doesn't see differences. It's where your soul resides. Your soul is colorblind. Your soul does not even partake in the definitions and judgments that we put on others. It just partakes in energy. So, When we are wrapped in tomorrow or yesterday or what anyone else is doing, really taking us out of just what we are in control of, right? Taking your power back and we focus on what others are doing. Why does it matter? It doesn't matter one bit. In fact, it is draining us. And that's where now we are truly coming into a place where we really understand, we really viscerally experience that thoughts, what we think about, do create our reality. And emotions that we put to the thoughts generate manifestation. So thoughts create a reality and adding emotion to the thought, fueling it with emotion, that manifests it. So you have put emotion, you have put feeling to a thought, and that identification through feeling puts energy in it, fuels it, right? Emotional, anything emotions, energy in motion is what emotion stands for, energy in motion. That energy then takes action, it manifests. Now, Jupiter represents higher wisdom. It represents learning. In astrology, it literally symbolizes higher places of learning, like universities or taking courses online, for example. So the wisdom that you receive, of course, you can study all you want. You can read books and take classes, but wisdom can only be achieved when you walk through the gateway of experience. That is truly what wisdom is. So we looked at the cross. So now let's take it a little further. Because your embodiment of God consciousness will bring you here and we're not taught in our culture 
to trust, like who has been, well, there might be some schools or, you know, certainly there are parents who would teach trust your intuition and all of that. But in terms of our educational system, we are not, we're just taught to operate from here for everything, memory and all of that. So the embodiment of this, of God consciousness, will, going back to the cross symbolism, put you in a place where you can be ridiculed, where you can be persecuted, where others will judge you, right? You'll be put in that space. And I'm using the word judgment as people giving a definition. So they define something as good or bad, but positive or negative, right or wrong. And so that will happen when you don't operate in that space. If you don't partake in the labeling and definition of everything and you stay neutral, there will be people who don't know how to literally relate to you. And so they have to define you in their mind as something that they don't want. So, when we truly look at what judgment actually is, it's, and this is really the real definition, the authentic definition of judgment, it means that everything comes full circle. So this is where we bring the cross and the circle together. So to live in this world, you come to a space in your consciousness where everything is neutral. And that's how everything comes full circle in every moment where you don't label it, right? You don't give it definition. You don't go into either or or me or you or what I feel, what you feel versus you feel like versus positive, negative. Jupiter and Venus, by the way, are considered planets of positivity. And really what we should redefine them as is as planets that bring blessings. Blessings, we tend to label as positive. Again, we're defining the word blessings. However, blessings are neutral. And I'm sure you know that there are many blessings in disguise where we would initially label the experience as negative and then we look back and say that was a blessing in disguise. So blessings are truly neutral. So when you live in that world of neutrality versus the paradigm of right and wrong, you are keeping yourself in that space where there is no definition. And you can imagine what that will do when you now engage with others. You are staying in a place of non-judgment, no judgment, total neutrality. It doesn't mean that you can't feel sad. It doesn't mean that you can't feel angry, but you're not personalizing it. You're not adding emotional fuel to it. You are accepting it. You are stating it, but you are not being the anger and lashing out at others. You are just feeling it as something that is true to you and you are being in integrity about the feeling, but you're not using it in a way that personalizes because the personalization of it will inevitably create a judgment. So it is truly to just experience what is and experience what is not. And there's no labeling of either. There's no labeling of or. And there's just immersing yourself 
in God consciousness. And this is a big topic that we're going to dive into in a very profound way in that 2023 Ultimate Yearly Forecast, which, by the way, it's my ninth edition of that forecast. And the reason is 2023 activates the number 23, which is called by the ancients the Royal Star of the Lion, and it literally represents the strongest number in numerology. It is the number of confidence, of taking your power back. The lion, the king of the animal kingdom, right? So the Royal Star of the Lion next year merges with the number seven because 2023 adds up to a seven universal year. And seven is the number of bringing heaven to earth. So not separating heaven from earth, which again, if you look at our religions, they separate. They say, okay, you got to do good in order to reach heaven, right? That's a total separation. There is no such thing as heaven up there and hell down here. It truly is just you bringing heaven into your heart because that's where it resides. So we're going to dive into that very deeply, the spiritual number seven, why there's seven days in the week and et cetera, et cetera. It's just so beautiful. So to discover more about that ultimate yearly forecast, Go to 2023forecast.com and know there will be an instant access replay. If you can't make it on December 14th, you will get all the bonuses, all the handouts, and of course, the live stream. So just know that and uh, go watch that video at 2023forecast.com and have an amazing Venus Jupiter week this week. It's so exciting and um, lots of love. I will see you next week. That's the talking stick to you, Richard. Hello, hello again. Oh, my goodness. Yes, Commander. Well, I'm, I'm working on a book, but I'm not ready to report on it yet. So uh, we'll just yeah. save that for another night. But uh, I got the uh, Sabian Symbol book out. Good. And, uh, yeah, the uh, 19 degrees of Sagittarius is where the sun is today. Right. Right. Pelicans menaced by the behavior and refuse of men seek safer areas for bringing up their young. Keynote here is the need for people concerned with the future to discover a new way of living and more wholesome surroundings let's add to that we need to uh, 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 reevaluate our values the evident reason for using pelicans at this stage of the cyclic process is that tradition tells us that these birds are so concerned with their young that they give their own blood and flesh to feed their progeny Wow. Whether this is fact or symbol, the meaning of this picture refers to a situation that lately has acquired 
the great urgency. Our technological society is polluting not only our global environment, but the mind and feeling responses of new generations as well. The search for a new way of life is seen by many people to be imperative. Yeah, yeah this is a, a current thing going on in the in the in the society here. Yes. We are told that the races survive the races survival has become a matter of extreme importance. Whole animal species may be destroyed by our civilization. Mankind itself is in danger. Going to distant planets is hardly the answer. (laughs) A generation may have to sacrifice itself for the sake of its descendants. Yeah, we can we can riff we can riff on that chord. You know, um, I wanted to say, Richard, that it's just been stated that uh, Iran executed one of the protesters. Uh, oh yeah, wasn't in a public hanging. Yep, twenty-three years old, young man. Yeah, uh, that's exactly what you're just reading there. That uh, no. Oh my God! Yeah, the the young the young folks most most of it the young the young women. Yeah. Well, they uh, are, the are, morality police yeah, police there have killed hundreds and hundreds of young women. There's there's yeah. Yeah. They're they're in a tough place. Yeah. It's but yet it's reflected in uh, just every culture and well the same thing a similar thing is going on in Afghanistan. So Afghanistan is looking uh, mass starvation in the face. Yes. And uh, who knows. Who knows? It's just there's uh, it's just the what I what I see what the way it appears to me is, is some of the problems basically is small self selfishness for personal gain among mm-hmm. politician types. Around, among the oligarchs, these these small-minded, selfish types of individuals are the ones that need transformation. You remember we used to talk about where are the wealthy visionaries? Well, hard to say, hard to say where where they are. And what they're doing. We don't always know what they're doing, but there's a few out there. Cindy Lauper is one. Who? 
Cindy Lauper. Yeah, but, but she's probably only got a few millions, and there's we need tons and tons. Uh, uh, no, of that. she received her Masara blessing. She's got billions. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we we're talking about thirty degrees of Pisces. Yep. That's the majestic rock formation resembling a face. Mm-hmm. Is the idealized by a boy who takes it as, as his ideal of greatness, and as he grows up, he begins to look like it. That's from a Hawthorne, Nathaniel Hawthorne story. The power of clearly visualized ideals to mold the life of the visualizer. As a collective, we need to work on our visualizing of our ideals to mold the new civilization we're trying to build here. Right? Yep. Yep. And we've got... got, we got a problem uh, the way people think about money and possessions. That's one of the problems, all right? You got the problem of illusions, illusions, which is a mental condition where people think what they're thinking is accurate. Yeah. And it's not. Right. And then you got the problem of glamour, G-L-A-M-O-U-R, which is a problem where people are using their feelings to support their choices when their feelings are generally a product of the astral plane, which is a totally made-up, human-created, magnetic environment. You know, we've got we got physical environment problems. We got emotional magnetic problems. We got mental problems. Let alone selfishness and greed and corruption and. Uh, Aggression and territoriality. See what else is there? Mm. There's a couple more, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, we got the problem of borders. We got the problem of um, migration. There's there's a good one. How how would Jesus solve that one? Well, I'm a, I want to make a comment that. of what they call migration is actually refugees. They're not migrants, they're refugees. Yeah. That's a big difference. 
and they well, don't. Yeah, admit. if we're gonna if we're gonna be accurate with our language, and, and um, it's not just the language accuracy; it's about the empire is is at cause of oh, the. Oh yeah, and and uh, you know activities done by governments in the past are coming home to roost. Exactly, thoughts are things. You are what you. Yeah. So. Uh, and and the hope is in the collective mind and hearts of men and women of goodwill. That's correct. And we're in the season. Let it be. Let it be. That's right. Goodwill to all humans, and let's get some peace on earth. <laughs> Yes, sir. Commander, sir. At your service. I command it. <laughs> and command it. Yes. I command and demand <laughs> that these yes. people put down their guns. Yeah. Oops. And now, and now you got. See, now you got uh, Iran supplying Russia with uh, military hardware. Yeah, well, in the United States, some some of these people in the United States are all uh, operating as if they're righteous when the United States is the biggest arms seller in the world. That's right. So that's ass backwards. Mm -hmm. Anyway, all right, Rama, you guys have a good week. I will uh, persevere and with. uh, with all good intentions, I'll talk to you next week. Oh, we are looking forward to it. It's very right. much time. But in 11 days, we've got in 11 our... days, yeah, next week we'll look at the uh, winter solstice chart. We're going to start the year with, with Mars retrograde and Uranus retrograde and Chiron retrograde. Woo! And Pluto going into Aquarius. Say again? And Pluto going into Aquarius. Is that going to happen next year? Uh, maybe. Uh, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's an easy one to check. All right. Over and out. Namaste. Over and out. Namaste, Richard. Aloha. Aloha. All right. So, everyone, we'll uh, take our uh, phone numbers for going to our conference call, Rob. 720 716 7301. And the pin code is 353 863 pound. So, we will see you there. And then at the top of this next hour, we'll be right back here at BBS Radio, the best radio there is in the universe. And that's the word. And so see you on the conference right now. Namaste, everybody. We did a lot of uh, interdimensional traveling on our conference call, everyone. <laughs> what, honey? Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Well, 
we're going to do uh, Rama said let's do this one it's called Gisa a new theory with Armando Ma'i Ma, Ma, why do mainstream Egyptologists ignore evidence that the pyramids were designed to perfectly align with the stars of Orion's belt yeah. in 36,400 B.C. <clears throat> Investigative journalist Armando Mayi offers a new theory of Giza to the world. Based on questions posed by Graham Hancock. We're going to get a dose of Graham Hancock that we can hear maybe the whole story. <laughs> mm. In Robert Bowlaw and Hancock's book, Keeper of Genesis, mm -hmm. analyzing the astrological alignments, Mayi examines the entire Giza Plateau region and believes ancient tablets like the king's list further prove his theory that these megalithic structures are much older than we realize. In the exclusive Gaia original special Learn, New Perspectives on Mainstream Egyptology, Hidden Messages in Egyptian <coughs> Mythology, Codes found in the alignment of the stars with the Giza Plateau. The true purpose of the pyramids. And the last, the lost civilization of Giza still coming to light. So, Armando Mei, I might be mispronouncing that last name, M-E-I, mm. Uh, will be presenting, and this is 41 minutes. Let's get started. Coming. It's coming. and odor. I will read to you a new theory on the origins of the pyramids of Giza, or what Egyptologists call Zeptepi, the creation of ancient Egypt. Yeah. Until now, all researchers focused their study on the Great Pyramid, or the Sphinx, sometimes on the Second Pyramid, the Catherine Pyramid, never on the Third Pyramid, the Mycerinus Pyramid. The Giza Plateau has never been studied as a whole, considering the possible existence of other monuments that were built at the same time as the pyramids and the Sphinx. 
Researchers have consistently rejected the assumption. But as we'll see, that new point of view is the key to understanding one of the mysteries of the past. And it opens the way to my theory of the primary planning of Giza. At the end of 90s, Robert Boval published Keeper of Genesis, co-authored by Graham Ankle. The book has been so important to me because it prompted me to initiate my research on the Giza Plateau. There is a question in the book that struck me. In one of the last chapters, Hancock asked Robert, why do you have the alignment between pyramids and stars dated at 10,500 before Christ and not a previous processional time, such as 36,000 or 62,000 before Christ? Boval answered very carefully, because dating could affect the phases of human evolution. I can understand why Boval gave that answer. It was a very trying time for him, being accused of heresy by Egyptologists. However, Hancock's question is fascinating. His inquiry opened my mind as I tried to join all clues concerning the myths and papyrus, gods and kings list lost civilizations and pyramids. Everything was going to be joined by that question. My mind was flowing towards new patterns and I understood that the key was written in the stars. They were waiting to be read correctly. Then another important event took place in 2012. I received an email from John Barr an English Egyptologist who discovered a very interesting tune. At the end of the email, he asked my opinion concerning the so-called Mastaba of Queen Kenkawas. I have to say that he caught me by surprise because I have never heard about that unknown monument positioned southeast of the pyramids. So I studied the monument, acquiring lots of information and then I went to Egypt to research its possible purpose. After a challenging investigation, I discovered one of the forgotten pieces of the primary planning of Giza. Let's go in order. The Kenkawas Mastaba is a fascinating monument with very particular shapes. Before introducing the analysis, I believe it's crucial to understand who Queen Kenkawas was and when she took part in Egyptian history. She was Mycerinus' daughter and mother of the first three pharaohs of the fifth dynasty. And she wanted her last abode built on a ridge southeast of the pyramids. We don't know why she chose this, but we can be sure some interesting clues through some investigation. Two types of construction stages characterized her tomb. The lower part is somewhat mysterious, but Egyptians clearly built the top during the dynastic age. The lower part is very intriguing because of its shape. Let's investigate the mystery of the lower part. 
First, from east to west, the lower part is carved in the rock and looks like a spiral. Second, we know the spiral is hermetically connected to the great mother's myth, symbolizing fertility, growth, plenty. Third, Kankawa's name means who rules from the spirits, which is the same function of Isis as Osiris' wife and the afterlife goddess. Fourth, the spiral carved at the base of Kankawa's mastaba results in a design that looks like the star Sirius orbit. Fifth, if we observe the west side of the ridge, we see evidence of water erosion that is very similar to the Sphinx erosion. We have some evidence reminding us of the goddess who the Egyptians worship. And at the same time, we can assume that the lower carved part of Mastaba is the same age as the Sphinx because of the same water erosion present. But that is just the beginning. I put my clothes together, but before coming to any conclusion, I needed to explore the sky above Giza during the Zeptepi. It was clear that Bova's proposal didn't work, so I shifted the sky back in time to the preceding processional cycle. In the following table, we can see the sky above Giza in 36,400 before Christ. At the vernal equinox dome, an entire processional cycle before 10,500 before Christ, the monuments were perfectly aligned with the constellations as follows. First, at east, the earliest sunshine rays disclosed to dawn. Second, lion constellation and sphinx are closely connected to the east, as in Boval's theory. Third, this is the key to my theory. The Orion constellation is on the celestial meridian, precisely above the pyramid, but the difference is a perfect connection between Al-Nitak, the largest star of the Orion's belt, and the Great Pyramid, the biggest monument on the Giza Plateau. As Al-Nitak lies on the celestial meridian, the Great Pyramid lies in the center of the emerged lens, or rather, at the main meridian and parallel intersection, or rather, at the distance of one-third between the equator and the north pole, symbolizing the natural zero for longitude. Fourth, the correlation between monuments and stars occurred only in that astronomical configuration and in no one astronomical alignment from the present time to 100,000 before Christ. What is amazing is the presence of Sirius in the sky at the southeast, near the Orion constellation and visible from Giza because the star lies above the celestial horizon. Its appearance in the sky suggests a possible correlation with a monument southeast of the pyramids. Moreover, many astronomical guidelines prove the concept of the new age beginning. First of all, the moon. It is in the new moon period, having just a few minutes of the new lunar phase. 
It's positioned slightly below the celestial horizon, ready to follow the sun across the ecliptic. Then let's observe the planet's position. They are positioned along the ecliptic, in precise order, in the southeast hemisphere. Symbolically, they are waiting for the rising sun as it moves along the ecliptic. Moreover, in ancient times, only the planets that were associated with the days of the week were present. It is very intriguing to note that the planet of the rest, Saturn, is located precisely in the southwest quadrant, the so-called place of death for the ancient Egyptians. Its disposition is fascinating because of certain Hebrew traditions. They consider Saturday the day of rest dedicated to celebrating the Lord. Does it mean that Zeptepi memories influence Hebrew traditions? I think it is a topic to be analyzed as soon as possible. Let's return to the primary topic, the mysteries of Kenkawa's tomb. The question is, could it be as ancient as the pyramids? And if yes, what proof do we have? I believe that the answer was impressed somewhere in the ancient text. After many months dedicated to research, I found some clues in the inventory statement. As for the king's list, Egyptologists considered the inventory stele a very dubious document. The French Egyptologist Auguste Mariette found it in the middle of the 19th century. The stele is dated back to the 26th dynasty. As I said, archaeologists consider it unreliable because it refers to controversial events during the Cheops kingdom. Notably, the inscription compiled 1,500 years after Cheops' death says that when he took the throne, the pyramids and the Sphinx were already built. So I decided to study the document and I noted that its original translation seems to be incorrect. Some basic mistakes change the actual message. That's why I believe it could be vital in shedding light on the Giza mystery. Let's read the description according to Egyptologists. Cheops found the house of Isis, ruling of the pyramid, was near the house of the Sphinx, above between the north and the west of the house. But if we see the hieroglyphic circle, it has been translated just once. Meanwhile, it is inscribed twice. It means near or beside. Then, if we consider the original translation is incorrect, and the correct translation is, he, Cheops, found the house of Isis was near the pyramid and beside the house of the Sphinx, above between the north and the west of the house. From the translation, we have two conclusions. First, the house of Isis was between the pyramids and the Sphinx. Second, its geographical position is from the north to the west, through the Sphinx. What monument corresponds with that information? As we can appreciate from the image, it is the carved ridge on which Kenkawas built her mastaba.
From the position of the monuments, while the pyramids are perfectly aligned with geographical points in corresponding to Orion's belt, and the Sphinx aligns to the east and corresponding to the Lion constellation, the Mastaba seems to have a different alignment. If we observe the blue line, the monument's disposition seems to move towards the southwest. Is there a ratio? The answer is yes. Suppose we join with two red lines the northwest angles sighted in the inventory stable throughout the Mastaba Center and the west side. In that case, we obtain a design that looks like the Canis Meyer constellation, having the star Sirius as its vertex. It could be considered an effort to inscribe that constellation on Giza, explaining why they built the Mastaba with a different geographical position than the other monuments. But other clues suggest a possible correlation between the lower part of the Mastaba and the Sirius star. If we observe the astronomical map at 36,400 before Christ, to the naked eye, Sirius is very close to the Orion constellation and far away from the Lion constellation. So if the Mastaba is the image of Sirius on Earth, it must be closer to the pyramids and farthest from Sphinx. The image suggests that the distance among monuments are wrong because the Mastaba is closer to the Sphinx and farthest from the pyramids. Did the builders make a mistake? Absolutely not. The image shows that position is correct because Sirius is closer to Regulus in light years in the Lion constellation, farther than Orion. What does it mean? Is it a coincidence? In my opinion, it means that the builders had a perfect knowledge of science and particularly of astronomy. They knew about astronomical distances between stars, constellations and planets. But that's not all. If we observe the geographical position of the Mastaba on the Giza Plateau, we can see that it has an angular position of 67.39 degrees than the east, more or less. Now, in the alignment at 36,400 before Christ, the serious angular separation from east is 67.58 degrees. It's an amazing confirmation of their knowledge of astronomy and at the same time, it is proved that the monument is an ancient piece of the Giza primary planning. And very probably, where the Kenkawa's Mastaba was tens of thousands of years ago, there was a building positioned similarly called Isis House, which has since been destroyed, as the inventory stated tells. Lastly, the builders were so precise they joined the monument to geographical and astronomical points. What information could emerge from the dimensions of the lower part of the Mastaba? Could there be a possible mathematical relationship with the star Sirius? I analyzed some comparable parameters in royal qubits for homogeneous relationship. 
and the results are as follows. The first column shows the Mastaba parameters and the third comparable parameters of Sirius star. The second and the fourth columns show data in royal qubits. The fifth column shows the mathematical ratio as the base of relationship data. The last column shows the mathematical constants as the base of the Mastaba project. It means that the builders already knew serious physical characteristics and dimensions. So applying the mathematical constant pi and phi, the universal constants, one could apply everywhere in the universe, they processed an architectural model to build the monument, giving it proportionally the exact dimensions of the star. This is the first mystery I will try to unveil in the southeast of Kisa. There are also other well-preserved mysteries to unveil on the east side of the pyramids, where they build temples and the Sphinx. In 2014, I was engaged in an archaeological campaign in Giza, exploring the pyramid's northwest area. At the end of the job, I spent two days visiting the temples near the Sphinx because I was fascinated by the buildings with large limestone blocks. When you visit the Sphinx area, you can feel that it is a microcosm very different from the pyramids as it is composed of three buildings, the Sphinx Temple, the Temple of the Valley, and the Amenhotep II Temple. It is a world with its own characteristics and messages to the cult. The Sphinx is impressive and the temples are as well. They are positioned symmetrically and they seem to be similar in size and shape. Egyptologists claim that Catherine workers built the so-called Sphinx temples after building the second pyramid and the Sphinx. But I have many doubts on that matter. Instead, I believed the temples and the Sphinx were built simultaneously because of technical details, highlighting several symmetries, similarities and connections. Egyptologists say that the temple was built during Kefra's reign because they found the statue in Diorit in a well in the temple. However, this is the only proof they have. On the other side, Many clues suggest the temple is more ancient than the Egyptian age. For example, the inventory stele tell us the pyramids and the Sphinx already existed at the time of Cheops' reign. As for the pyramids in Ketkawa's Mastaba, the valley temple lacks hieroglyphics celebrating the pharaoh or deity of the time. I investigated the temples because I was intrigued by the blocks forming them that are impressive for their dimensions. They remind me of the blocks forming the pyramids and I believe they were part of the same project. Now, let's have a quick look at the monuments. The Sphinx temple is very ancient, more than dynastic age. It must be considered one of the most ancient temples ever built in Egypt, perhaps in there. Hundreds of limestone blocks formed its basic structure. 
What is impressive is that each stone has an average weight of 200 tons, positioned one upon the other. To have an idea of this endeavor, we can make a comparison with the famous archaeological site of Stone Age in England. Every monolith forming the English site has an average weight of 50 tons, just a quarter of the weight of the blocks used for the Sphinx Temple in Egypt. An in-depth investigation suggests that the temple seems to be built in two different stages because of the different type of blocks the builders used. At the beginning, the temple was built with limestone blocks, but during the dynastic age, Egyptian workers used granite blocks for restoring the building, affected by the wind and water erosion. When observing the blocks, we can see that granite was cut to fit together with limestone blocks, where they had strongly eroded. An interesting detail that could confirm the inventory's daily contents and suggest that Cheops likely had maintenance work done on his pyramid, but he did not build it. The second monument I visited was the so-called Valley Temple that is very similar to the Sphinx Temple. Built with limestone and then restored with pink granite blocks. We don't know why, but maintenance work was not completed and all of the blocks have been seriously affected by the weather. Lastly, I visited the unknown Amenhotep's II temple, built during the New Kingdom and positioned on the little ridge northeast of the Sphinx. It has almost collapsed, just few elements still stand, some columns, the entrance, and the stairwell complex at the bottom of the building. Observing the temple, we can see some details referring to the possible existence of a preceding monument on which Amenhotep workers built the temple. The floor, almost destroyed, reveals pieces of an ancient basement much older than the temple characterized by a huge blocks, reminiscent of those forming the two temples beneath the Sphinx. All these details need to be put in order to understand why, east of Giza, all those monuments were built and what their purpose was. Once more, I found the answer by observing the astronomical map at 36,400 before Christ. It allowed me to fix a perfect correlation between the pyramids and Orion's belt, between the Sphinx and the Lion constellation, and between Kankawa's Mastaba and Sirius, as new factor not seen in Boval's theory. I believe it is an excellent device to find out the truth about the mysteries of the east side of Giza. I used the same scientific model for Kentawa's Mastaba, which helped me discover its correlation with Sirius. Looking at the astronomical map, I observed the presence of two planets near Regulus, the greatest star of the Lion constellation. The two planets are Mercury and Jupiter, it was incredible to find a possible correlation with the monuments. 
It was a great clue, and it was the first time that I was working on monuments other than the pyramids or mastaba. I had two temples and two planets, several data points, and the need to bring new astronomical data to check for possible connections among them. I knew that it would be a stunning discovery if the results were correct. I believed that the mathematical constant pi and phi would play a key role similar to the Sirius-Kankawa's correlation. In addition, I approached the investigation using the same geometrical and physical parameters I used for Kankawa's mastaba. I analyzed comparable parameters having dimensions in royal qubits for homogeneous comparison. We have two tables for each correlation. Results are as follows. The first column shows the temples parameters as the third for planets comparable parameters. The second and the fourth columns show data in royal qubits. The fifth column shows the mathematical ratio as base of data relationship. The last column shows the mathematic constants as base of the temple's projects. Results confirm the doubts that builders cites the temple's dimensions processing some primary planet's parameters according to the laws of mathematics based on the application of the two main mathematical constants pi and phi. The astronomical configuration suggests a precise correlation between Jupiter and Mercury with Regulus during the astronomical time of the ZTP, giving a kind of a microcosm at the east of the pyramids, involving the Sphinx and temples as well. Moreover, the results suggest an elementary consideration. The builder's knowledge of astronomy was incredible at that time. We have the last mystery to unveil on the east of Giza. What was the purpose of the so-called Amenhotep II temple? Or better, the building on which Amenhotep II built his temple. The project seems to have been avoided because it has no possible correlation with the star due to the lack of astronomical element in the sky east of the line constellation. Why did the builders build it in that position? The first detail is the anomalous position of the temple than the geographical points. We all know that all monuments of Giza pointed to them, but the temple is totally out of place, much more than the Kenkawa's Mastaba. Why? I worked very hard to understand the ratio of the original building on which Amenhotep II built this temple during the New Kingdom. I believe I found the key to unveiling its purpose. If we draw a circle from the temple northeast corner toward the west, and then another circle from the same corner toward the east, we obtain two intersected circles forming a vesica Pisces, exactly as the ecliptic crosses the lion constellation's pose, represented by the star Regulus, so the two circles cross the Sphinx pose. So, 
its disposition was not accidental, but it had a precise function to fix the ecliptic plane at 36,400 before Christ. The lost civilization of Giza left a new incredible detail on earth to convey the message of their existence, a kind of message in a battle through the millennia to demonstrate their knowledge. In this way, they signed the age of the gods when the Zeptevi began during the Lion Age in 36,400 before Christ. During the 90s, many researchers believed that two sphinxes were built on the Giza Plateau. But despite archaeological campaigns at the time, they found no evidence of the second sphinx at Giza. Then why did some researchers believe that the builders conceived the second lion in Giza tens of thousands of years ago? I believe they were misled by an image from the tomb of the III showing two sphinxes inscribed beneath a pyramid. The image describes the core of the Egyptians' theology. The pharaoh's soul travels toward the region of Duat through the pitfalls of the Nile, assisted by the gods. Duat is the region of the afterlife that Osiris ruled. Due to the stellar origins of the Egyptians' theology, Tuat was associated with a particular region of the sky during the Old Kingdom. According to some researchers, it was symbolically positioned between the Orion constellation and Sirius or Taurus constellation. Many scholars suggest that Tuat was between the constellations of the north. In short, the matter is still unclear. Nevertheless, that image caused many debates at the time and Zakiawas was involved in investigations to find evidence of an ancient basement. On the east of Giza, a majestic sphinx is carved in the rock. In the west, there is nothing. Did the Egyptians make a mistake describing two sphinxes in their image of the afterlife? It wouldn't have been the first time we had incorrect information from the dynastic age. I went to Giza in 2014 to study the area, looking for clues suggesting a possible solution to the mystery. After some weeks, I found a possible solution. I also found evidence in the astronomical map I used to unveil the mysteries of Kenkawa's Mastaba and the temples to the east. I have always believed that the study of Giza is very complex. One of the limits of the archaeoastronomical investigations is highlighted by the fact that they focused on only one section of the sky. They have never studied the sky connected with monuments from east to west. In my opinion, if the lost civilization of the pyramids build all monuments connected to the stars, planets and constellations, it is possible they also build a monument in the West linked to the stars. It is already apparent they replicated the entire celestial bolt on Giza, exactly from east to west. I was aware that there was a monument connected to the primary planning. 
Now let's watch the astronomical map at the alignment of 36,400 before Christ. We have already observed the perfect relationship between the Sphinx and the Lion constellation and between the temples and two planets in the east, between the pyramids and Orion's belt, and between the Kankawa's Mastaba and the star Sirius in the south. Now we must focus on the west of the astronomical map. In the center of the map, let's consider the Orion constellation as the starting point. The green line is the ecliptic. Now let's follow its path until the point referring to the autumn equinox in the west of the sky, where the ecliptic meets the horizon line. Exactly west and slightly below the celestial horizon, the Aquarius constellation is perfectly in opposition to the Lion constellation. Therefore, if the lost civilization of Giza reproduced the celestial walls on Earth, it's very probable they built a monument reminding us of the Aquarius constellation and not a lion. The Aquarius position in the sky, slightly below the celestial horizon, has fascinating details because, first, the monument is not visible from the pyramids, such as the constellation is not visible from the point of observation, that is to say from the center of the west side of the Catherine's Pyramid. Second, esoterically, it has excellent symbolism because the west connects to the place of rest, the place of death, the last step before entering a new dimension, acquiring a new status of wisdom. In this case, we have an intriguing detail to investigate. Aquarius and wisdom, symbolically water and soul. What is the connection with Giza? In 1923, a German scientist, Max Ludwig Paul Blankner, found clues of an ancient river on Libyan Mediterranean coasts. He dated the river to 50,000 years ago, and he called it Urnio, or twinned with the Nile. The river flowed across the desert between Libya and Egypt, and he noted that those intriguing artificial conduits characterized the river in some places. It probably originated from the sea and contained salt water. Michael Othman confirmed the study in his book Egypt Before the Pharaohs, the Prehistoric Foundation of Egyptian Civilization. Also in 1929, the University of Chicago published results of a geological research made by Stuart Sanford and William Jocelyn Arkell in the Fayum region in the south of Egypt. They also found ancient conduits and minor rivers originated from the Fayum region and directed north of Egypt across the desert. Salt water characterized those conduits. So we have many clues indicating a possible correlation between Giza, saltwater and monuments. But what is the meaning of all this? Maybe in the ancient past, the lost civilization of the pyramids built an artificial basin in the west of Giza. And if so, where was it built?
Sphinx is 663 meters from the center of the second pyramid, with a geographical direction of 277.5 degrees northwest. Moving towards the west with the same geographical direction and respecting the same distance of 663 meters, we join the ridge close to the NC2 tomb or tomb of the birds. NC2 tomb has fascinating shapes. Its entrance is carved from the rock. After the entrance, There are some chambers where the Egyptologists found a great number of mummified ivies. At the bottom, many natural and artificial conduits originate. They look like pipes going towards the underground of Giza to the pyramids. Many others are still blocked and many others are still unexplored. But some of them were explored years ago revealing some intriguing traces. The conduits have many clues of water erosion and in some points are so clear the evidence of sodium crystals. It means that conduits were full of some water that flowed to the pyramids in the distant past. With that in mind, I can assume that the so-called tomb NC2 or tomb of the birds is the last wonder of Giza. According to the Hermetic concept, as above, so below, the builders replicated the entire celestial bolt on the Giza plateau, which involved the west side with a monument correlated to the Aquarius constellation. What information can we receive from the primary planning of Giza? First, the builders complete the celestial bolt on Earth to leave a precise message of their time through the astronomical correlation. Second, the NC2 tomb gives a precise indication of the purpose of the pyramids and the basic process for producing energy by using nature, according to the dimensionless number 137, I discovered in 2011 in the section of the second pyramids of Giza. Now we have all factors to show the primary planning of Giza for the first time after 38,000 years. Interestingly, the astronomical map seems to be drawn in three different sections, as if they obtained the map from three different observation points. First, the east of Giza, with sphinx and temples connected to the east side of the sky, with the line constellations and two planets, Jupiter and Mercury. Second, the core of the sky, with Orion constellation and Sirius, perfectly aligned with the pyramids and Kenkawa's Mastaba, that in the distant past kept the house of ice. Third, the west of Giza, is characterized by the alignment between Aquarius constellation and NC2 tomb. This concludes my investigation into the mysteries of Giza. And the introduction to my theory of the Tectapia and the primary planning of Giza. I'm Armando May. Thank you for watching.
my. Well. Rama. Well, I could say that he's saying is, you know, the um, giant power stations using salt water, electricity. It also was, uh, remember, uh, it brought water from the Nile. Yeah. They had an irrigation thing, but it brought it into the Giza pyramid from below. Mm-hmm. And then, what was? I sort of forgot that. We went to see this couple in mm-hmm. Bogosa. Yeah. And they showed some films. Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, at the top of the pyramid in the king's chamber, there was a, there's a, a window of sorts, and there was something, because it's, it's all black on the, like, uh, an electrical, what, what happened there? Oh, <laughs> too many things. You know, we actually saw something at Shil Sarula's where yeah. uh, these other two, they were at a different dimension when they were in the king's chamber. They weren't on the ground. No, they they were in um, in the process of transmuting. Well, they didn't do that, though. Yeah. I mean, they're still here. Yeah, they are. Oh, yeah. I forgot their names. <laughs> There's all kinds of phenomena going on, but the fact of the matter is that uh, these pyramids are up right now, and I liked what Toriana brought up tonight. Mm. Those seed pods to transform the entire Sahara Desert into a garden, a, garden, a tropical garden. Uh, in 48 hours or so, the uh, sounds like the Jack and the Beanstalk story, but you know, only going horizontally across the, the desert with all these seed pods that uh, contain xenon gas. Yes. And when they open after the 48 hours, uh, it completely cleans the atmosphere. And it doesn't just do it over the Sahara. It continues throughout the whole planet. Mm. Uh, And at the same time, we're also talking about taking a little folks for a ride who have been doing just making the mess. Right? Mm -hmm. Okay, well... We're going to play a little music tonight, so I'm going to just... We're going to do one more here. Uh, Rama, this one is, you want to play this one, Self-Correcting Universe? Um, There was another one that I saw that jumped out at me that I think was 
Encounters with ETs and Angels with George Nuri. Oh, that's a different one. 32 minutes. Yeah. Okay, you want to do that one now? Yeah. Okay. Say that loud so everybody can understand you. Encounters with ETs and Angels with George Nuri. And who else? Um, Dolores. Divara Thunderbee is a musician, sound healer, and author of books, including Look Up, My Encounter with ETs and Angels. Okay, well, let's do it. 30, yeah. 30 minutes? 33 minutes. 33 minutes. Good number. 33rd planet to ascend from the uh, Milky Way galaxy. Oh, yikes. Here we go. You are a full-blooded E.T.? I guess I will. You, you, all of us are, I think, you know. <laughs> I was born through my mother, but we came from Sirius. They actually took me up in the ship and brought me to Sirius A and stopped me before we got into Sirius A. He came and did a circle around me, uh-huh. and I said, what is he doing? And he said, he's looking for immoral implants. Welcome to this edition of Beyond Belief. Deborah Thunderbeat is a sound healer, contactee, and a great author. She has had contact with angels, extraterrestrials, ever since she was a little girl. Deborah, welcome to the program. Thank you, George. How are you? Wonderful. I'm very excited to be here. How did this all happen for you? Um, I started when I was four years old. Four years old? Yes. Uh, I was playing in the driveway, broad daylight upstate New York, and a, I call it a cloud ship, came over and pulled me up into the ship. You got beamed up? Uh, yes. I, I I didn't see a beam, but I remember they were pulling me up, and as they were pulling me up, my mother ran out of the house trying to catch me, and they pulled her up, too. That's where it all started. Were you screaming? No. <clears throat> Actually, they were so... You were calm. I was very calm, and when I was in the ship... They um, put me on actually a silver table and rolled me down this hallway, and it was so peaceful. And uh, I was passing these rooms with different colors, and there were archways, uh, doorways, and there were each room was lit up. Don't know how it was lit up because I didn't see any, you know, mechanical things in inside the rooms. But each room was a different color, and then they put me into another room, and they shined mm-hmm. golden light onto me, and they said your name is Flying Eagle with many wings. Mm. And then they brought me back and then put me in the driveway, broad daylight. With your mother? And, but no, my mother wasn't there. My mother ran out of the house after they put me back and she goes, where have you been? I've been looking all over for you. I was ready to call the police. And I said, mom, I've been playing here in the driveway the whole time. My mother was panicked. So she couldn't find me. So they brought her, I guess they brought her up and then brought her back. And we both did not remember. We didn't remember what happened okay. until until I got a regression with Dolores Cannon. I remember bits and pieces, and I go, oh. what was that? <laughs> what do you think they wanted with a little four-year-old? 
Well, I found out later. It was actually my star family. And they wanted to remind me my mission. Are you a hybrid? No. You're not. No, I am not. No. I am, uh, they're my, I'm from Sirius A, they said. And I volunteered to come here to help humanity. You are a full-blooded ET? I guess I will. You, you, all of us are, I think, you know. <laughs> well, now, here I am talking to you on our Beyond Belief show. Are you a human being or are you yes, an I'm a human being. You are a human being. Yes, I was born here. I'm not saying that mom. to be rude, but I have to ask you. <laughs> That's okay. That's fine. Uh, no, I was born through my mother, but we came from Sirius. So a lot of us have traveled. We just don't remember that we come from different planets and then uh, either come here to uh, experience whatever you want to experience here on the planet Earth because we go to many planets and experience many things on different planets. Um, everyone, not I shouldn't say everyone. I don't know that for a fact, but I know a lot of people are from different planets and they just they come to experience and visit our help because the uh, Earth was calling for help. Mother Gaia was going help. Me, it still is, I think. And, oh, absolutely. So there's a lot of us helping as much as we can. On this other planet, what do they look like? I'm always curious. There was many species on that planet. The ones that um, uh, they said I'm connected with, there's a lot of pink uh, beans. They kind of look gray, shaped like the grays, but they're all pink. Big and, heads? Uh, bigger heads, bigger eyes but they're pink and they are very loving um, and uh, beautiful emotions. Like I've met grays. I've met many species. I have over a dozen uh, different kinds of species and the grays are more mechanical. Yeah. You know, they're kind of, they have some, some have feelings with like this robotic feeling at the same time. Well, these pink ones did not. Then I've met bird beings there. There's, um, uh, his name was Salu. He said that he was my left rank commander. When you say bird beans, they he had white hair birds? for uh, white hair for feathers, feathers for white hair or whatever. And uh, he had he looked human, but he had the pink, more of a pinkish skin. It wasn't a costume; it was him. him. Oh, it's him, and his eyes were uh, golden triangles pointing down, and his pupils were like beams of light coming out. Um. A friend of mine actually uh, painted a picture of him and got very close to what he looked like. And then I've met, uh, we're talking to Sirius A, uh, I met the golden ones, they call them. They're a beautiful, shining light, all full of gold, and they don't really even have faces. They just glow, this golden glow light. There's always been a lot of talk about the Sirius star system because we get a lot of reports of ET activity from that star system. Now, on Gaia's initiation program, Matthias de Stefano mm -hmm. talks about the relationship between humans, which is what you are, <laughs> and those yes. from Sirius. Okay. For the people of Earth, Sirius is like our other sun. We have our own sun, but Sirius was always the guide of our sun. So, Everything that we do in our system is guided by them. We call them the mother star, or, or uh, as we call the sun, the father star. Uh, 
So both of them, the mother and the father, and are uh, were always in connection because Syrian people they had personal influence and personal purposes in our system because even if we are not exactly the same they had this idea from the confederation that this planet is one of the most prepared planets to receive all the genetics from the whole galaxy and to prepare every species to to be aware of who we are as a galaxy so that's why they had this personal interest in this planet and they are trying to to guide us from since long time ago and and humans and Syrians were really uh, attached at the beginning of our civilizations they were the ones teaching us how to build the pyramids how to how to build the temples how to handle sound technology so they were our teachers the the ones that help us to understand the universe Fascinating. Do you agree with that? Oh, him? absolutely. That's what I'm talking about also. Okay. Absolutely. But how would he know this? Well, I don't know him personally. Uh, maybe he's visited there. <laughs> Could he be from that star system too? Uh, I'm not sure. But it's Sirius A. Uh, a lot of people talk about Sirius B. It's a big difference. And they live inside the sun. We've got some stills I want to look at and have you go through them for us. Let's okay. look at our first one and tell us. What this is. That's Salu, who I was talking about. He uh, is the bird being. That's him. Yeah, that's him. He's got white feathers for hair. That's actually white feathers. And he has triangle golden eyes pointing down. But he looks human. And that's his emblem down there. Uh, It's, uh, you know, like Star Trek has their emblem. That's the Syrian commander emblem. And he is a uh, works with the Syrian Council of Light. How old would you say he is? Uh, that's, I've never thought of that. I don't know. Uh, he looks very, very young. They look very, they're very energized or higher vibration. They're supposed to be 6D, six dimensional, six density. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. All right, let's so look at our next picture of a purple type alien. Yeah. What is this? This is like the, um, similar to the, the tall golden ones, the triangle beans. But this one I met, he's shorter. Is it alive or a woman? Alive. Oh, yeah. They have, they, the way they maneuver is they float and then they bounce. And okay. They float and they bounce. And even doesn't matter the density of the, uh, like air or out in space, but they can maneuver. And his purpose, how I met him before, um, they actually took me up in the ship. And brought me to Sirius A and stopped me before we got into Sirius A and was transfer me, transferring me into a different ship. And before they transferred me into a different ship, he came and did a circle around me. Uh-huh. And I said, what is he doing? And he said, he's looking for immoral implants. Immoral? What's an immoral? Immoral implants. What is an immoral implant? That means a negative in- implant. If somebody implants you with a negative device. Is like not a, like allowed. a listening device or a tracking device? Could something. be any of that. All of that, actually. Anything negative, something negative that could, uh, you know, maneuver you being a different person, AI. Um, so he, he, they make sure there's no negative 
immoral implants in you before you go to serious A. What if there is? They, they take them out. The, they take them out. Next picture is an angelic alien. Let's look at this one. Tell us about this one, Deborah. This is the golden ones I'm talking about. They're full of golden light. The energy of them, it, that golden light fills the room. Their light fills the room. And it's just beautiful, pure light. All right. Let's look at our last picture here. Typical alien gap gray, right? Yeah, that is the pink ones. They're actually pink and they look like grays, but they're pink. And they're a whole different energy. They have feelings and emotions, uh, like some of the grays do not. Um, yeah, that's, so that's what they look like, but they're, they're pink. Are they friendly? Yes. Absolutely. They're very loving. All of them are loving, happy. There's no energy of fear, negativity. Negative thoughts on. Wow, that's great. Yeah, I'm serious. A that I ever felt or experienced. You've had angelic experiences too, mm -hmm. haven't you? Absolutely. Tell me about that. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. My first one was when I was overnight in the Great Pyramid of Egypt. I did an activation in there, and as soon as I finished the activation, I played drums uh, also. And, oh, you do? Okay. Yeah, and I did an activation for the pyramid, and then. Archangel Gabriel showed up, appeared, and he says to me, color, light, sound. Seven is the sacred number. Seven yeah. is the sacred number. Color, light, sound. He kept repeating this over and over again. So I said, oh, okay, he's talking about the seven colors of the rainbow, which are associated with the chakras. And he's telling me there is a different sound to activate each chakra. That's what I got from it. This is in 1997. This is before like people had chakra CDs out or anything like that. Right. So I came home. I said, I'm excited. I'm going to write this CD and it's going to call, be called Chakra Journey. And he came with me home to my house in Sedona and helped me write the CD, giving me the activational tones for each chakra. Is, is there in your mind a difference between angels and ETs or are they the same? Well, I think they're all ETs. It's just the angels hover closer to the earth, the ones that are helping here. And I have actually seen some with wings. Um, my, my Native American side, we call them from the bird tribe. And um, they are they have dedicated themselves to help humanity. So they are here, the good angels. So that's the difference. The ETs live light years away. The angels are just right here. Are they constantly trying to teach us how to be godlike? No, it's more like um, they're here to help, and they can only help us if we ask because it's a free will zone area. The earth is a free will zone area. So they can, they're not allowed to intrude unless we ask for help, then they come and help us. Now, the Essenes wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm -hmm. On Gaia's Ascension Keepers, William Henry talks about the Essenes, but questioning whether they lived with angels. Oh. My research reveals that all of the Essene communities were ascension centers where celestial beings found safe harbor and taught humans how to perfect themselves and transform into angels. In other words... They taught humans how to wear their robes of light 
and to ascend. The Essenes answered the question, can a human become an angel? With a specific plan for mass perfection or transformation and ascension. As we have seen, ascension and perfection are interchangeable terms for the Essenes. In addition to perfection, scholars refer to this transformation as angelomorphism or human transformation into an angel. Becoming an angel and ascending is the one goal they believe that takes care of all other goals or intentions. The Essenes claim they possess this knowledge of how to make or transform humans into holy ones and to change our state of existence by illuminating the world. And if we accept that the Essenes were living among angels and extraterrestrials, the next logical question is, who were these angels or what kind of angels were they? The answer is, they are known as the angels of the Lord or the watchers. Early mystical Hebrew sects organized these angels into an archangel hierarchy. This is the origins of the spiritual hierarchy idea. According to this system, the watchers are the highest angels possible and were ruled over by four of their own. The great angels known as Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, and Ariel. And investigative mythologist William Henry is one of the best. Yes. What do you think of what he just said? Wonderful. It's just perfect. And I feel that a human being wants to become like an archangel. They volunteer or they prepare themselves. It's like, okay, yes, I want to help now. I want to help humanity and from above. So you actually volunteer to be an angel, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, Deborah, tell us about your work in healing. Oh, I do um, a lot of sound healing and actually work with the colors of the rainbows, chakras. And um, Is that your specialty, would you say? Pardon? Is that a specialty of yours? Yeah, a lot of people do sound healing, but I do it with the chakras because each chakra has the uh, activational key to open up you know, your centers and each center is a, is a energy and a knowledge and a purpose. So you're holding a lot of knowledge and information in there. And if it's blocked, the sound will actually open up and release and clear out that chakra and, and activate you as a full being of awareness. Cause each one is a psychic ability. Each, each chakra is an awareness of who you are, why you're here. Um, and then I also do uh, the 22 DNA activations. What are they? They're, um, that was another angel that came to me. His name was Metatron. And uh, I was reading the Keys of Enoch uh, from J.J. Uh-huh. Hurtock. Sure. I was actually studying it because that's a book you study. It's a great book. Yeah. Oh, it's incredible. But, you, yeah, you don't just read that book. You study that book. And I was studying it and... After about a week of reading it and studying it, uh, I woke up one morning and Archangel Metatron announces himself, started vibrating my head and body. And he said, uh, he said, he announced himself and he said, your number is 202-2030. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? It took me a while to put it together. 
it was the keys of in the keys of Enoch two hundred two two hundred three hundred is three or four pages and it talks about the twenty two DNA RNA golden light codes yeah. and he said this is my work that I chose to do when I came down here so now I do that work. Why does music have such an effect on the body? It's frequencies, frequencies, sound. Each sound has its own knowledge and frequency. Each sound has its own color. You know, we just can't see it when it, when you're hearing it. But color and sound have knowledge and they activate you in a certain way. Each each tone, each key, each frequency affects your body, mind, and soul. That's why some people when they meditate hum. It works. Um, you know, that brings that's your crown chakra, brings you up to source. It's a vibration. Right? It's a vibration and it brings you up to source, so it helps you with uh, connection with the all, the all knowing. How often do you use music in your work? All the time. All the time. All the yeah, time. I have, I have many, I have about 14 CDs out, all activational. Every, every single one is totally different from each other. For different purposes. Yeah, do the do the tones do different things to people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it takes them on journeys, helps them remember past lives, remember helps them, like I said, remember who they are, why they're here, uh, triggers their memory, uh, healing, all kinds of uh, different activation. I have an ascension CD that bring raises their frequency. Let's say if a person is extremely, you know, ascension is works for depression also, you know, sadness and. Right. You know, and and all the you know the heaviness that's going on here on the planet raises your vibration, and oh, I'm I can breathe again. I'm happy, and instead of like oh this again today, so it raises your 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 vibration. Well, how does the sound affect our consciousness? It's through vibration. That's the best way I can explain it. You have to experience it. But when you do that, what happens to the body? Uh, it heals. It actually uh, kind of puts its cellular memory back together. Your cells, you know, of like who you are and like your perfect status, you know, of who you are. And um, we have we're bombarded here with, um, you know, um, pollution, bad foods, bad water. Wow. That all messes up your DNA and your cellular Big structure. So this actually rejuvenates it, clears it out, and rejuvenates you again back to your true form. Gaia program called Sound of Creation backs up exactly what you're saying. Oh, wow. When we think about how sound affects our consciousness, we have the ability through chanting, through meditation, through song, to amplify our thoughts to a greater degree than perhaps most realize. And in amplifying our thoughts, we're having a direct effect on not only our own consciousness, but the consciousness of everyone that we come into contact with. It was found that when we use music, it tremendously increases our mental abilities. So music, it's not just for relaxation. It's not just for fun, but it's much more than that. With music, we can much easier transform to higher states of consciousness. 
play a national anthem and people are ready to march into battle and lay down their lives. So music affects us dramatically. It's almost like we're in, in our culture, we're programmed by our music. Just imagine if we can actually apply this in a way that is directed at, at navigating or directing our culture into a higher frequency or vibration. That's where we're at right now. Music in general, listening or playing, is one of the few things that can light up the whole brain simultaneously, as seen on an EEG scan. This can cause the consciousness to harmonize, as we can use more of our total brain capacity in these coherent states. Music really is astounding yeah. to the body, isn't it? Edgar Casey said music will be the, the healing for the future. There was a late Dr. Yamoto mm -hmm. who did some experiments with what I would call pleasant music mm -hmm. and harsh music. Mm -hmm. And he used water crystals as his test. He did. What he did is he played music, bombarding the water. Mm -hmm. I would say nice music, froze it, looked under a microscope, and the structure of the frozen water was gorgeous. Yeah. Just perfect. So and then he did the same thing with harsh music, looked under a microscope, and it was totally discombobulated. Yeah. I, I, How does that happen? Through frequencies, you know? <clears throat> what you does know? that do to us? Same thing. Because we're, we're made of what? 85, 90% water. Something like water? Yeah. Yeah, something like that. And so, yes, we're totally affected by it. How do you create your sounds? Uh, very well, using different instruments, um, tuning forks, crystal bowls, keyboards, drumming, chimes. I use many different instruments depending on what I'm creating. So Now, you have also done some work with the pyramids. Yes. Tell me your involvement with that. Um, basically, uh, spirit told me in 1997, when I went to the great pyramids that to bring my drum to activate the pyramids. And they said, the pyramids have been dormant for eons. So I said, okay. And they and said what that, do they mean by that what they needed activated was the generators down below. There's actually generators down below. This is what they told me. And I think they're just finding the Yeah, I think they're just finding this out now. And I've been talking about this for 20 years now. And like electric generators, things uh, like that. I think they're more like crystal. I don't know that information. Right. But what I do know is they said I activated the pyramids and which helped stabilize the earth from shifting her axis dramatically. I had heard that. Yeah. So this is one of the purposes so when I went back the second time to Egypt, I uh, brought a group and I, we were toning. I, I brought my tuning forks that time. And Spirit said, use the tuning forks for heaven and earth, which I already I know what they are, the keys for the heaven and earth. And I did. And all of a sudden, we were all chanting and toning that keys. And Tibetan monks started chanting with us. And you couldn't see them. Everyone heard them. Where were they coming from? That's what I was wondering. And there's a temple guard there. And I asked the temple guard, I said, do you have speakers in here? He says, no, 
you did it. You did it. You activated the pyramid. And we all heard this. Like there was like a dozen. That's what it sounded like. It it sounded like a dozen chanting monks, you know, Tibetan monks. Mm -hmm. That sound is the best way I can describe it. I don't know, but that's what happened. The pyramids like the Mayan pyramids, the Great Pyramids, they're all similar. Were they constructed by the same people? Uh, That's a good question. Um, uh, I'm getting a uh, yes and a no, actually. Um, they're similar designs and the same similar uh, purposes and knowledges, but um, uh, each one had its own purpose. Well, like what would a function be? Um, well, it, basically, yeah, like I was saying, for uh, activating uh, and connecting the Earth to with the other star systems, because we are all one, you know, And when we're not connected, then we get separated and our energy shifts. Like the planet Earth is a lower frequency. It can actually be a higher frequency, but it's right now it's starting to shift into a higher frequency. So the pyramids help with that. And the pyramids, um, they really stabilize the Earth uh, in connection with the other star systems. On the Galactic Messages program, there's an explanation about the purposes of the pyramids. Oh. Some pyramids don't even need to have complex mechanisms inside, as they work with vibrational synchronicity, reflecting and vibrating to the same frequency other pyramids vibrate to. With that, they also contribute to sustain the planetary frequency, and also augment the power-producing efficiency of those that do have electric components inside. The pyramids are frequency generators. Placed there at the same time as the moon, they had to take part on the creation of the matrix. But under federation control, they could be capable of removing the lunar matrix by changing the frequencies and mingling with the ones of the moon in a very real way, providing a way to control the frequency of the earth without having to go all the way to the moon. Those are the main functions of a pyramid. They were built for those specific purposes from the very beginning. Also note that some pyramids were built as monuments to pyramids. I mean, they don't do much, only be there. The true purpose of the Great Pyramids is to augment the potential of everyone who is inside them for interstellar travel at will. Astral flight with or without the physical body remains the same. Do you agree with all of that? Absolutely. I was you saying do. the same thing. Same thing. Yeah. I have a picture I want you to tell us. It has to do with a beam. And uh, let's see what this is. Yeah, this is um, actually my uh, from my Mayan CD. When I was down uh, the first time in the Mayan lands. That's the Mayan pyramid? That's the Mayan pyramid, yeah. What's the, floating above it? That is mm-hmm. a 
ship activating the pyramid. So in 1998, when I first went down to the Mayan lands, that's the vision I saw. I said, they're, they're going to be coming in 2012. The ships are going to be coming in 2012 to activate the pyramids all over the world. And that's what I saw of them beaming a light in the pyramids. Wow. And at the same time. Yeah. And I said this in 1998 and it started happening in 2011. A Mayan shaman saw my CD cover in 11-11-11 conference I was at. And he said, this is what's happening. This is happening now. This is what's happening. And I said, I saw that. I kept seeing that vision. So then I wrote this uh, CD and um, had that picture on there just to show the prophecy. Mama, tell them about when you went with Soltec. Oh, I went to one of the temples in Tikal, Guatemala, and Soltec went inside one of the pyramids there and and he went to a room he went to a room off to the left and he pushed this lever flipped a switch and i saw that switch and the beam went up into the ship and energized the um crystals just the other way around from what she was saying that the actual i was in that there's five pyramids at tikal they're kind of in a circle yeah yeah and anyway, that one, uh, uh, I literally experienced the energy and I saw that. I said, look at this. I mean, and so that's, that's what happened when that switch got flipped. Uh, the, uh, beam came from the pyramid itself and energized, uh, what's star, uh, what's, uh, the phoenix, right? Yeah, but this was some kind of shuttlecraft that we went. Oh, wasn't the whole? No. Yeah, because that, that would be too big, right? was a smaller craft. The other one would be too big to do that. Yes. Wow. Okay, continue. It's just so fascinating. Yes. Deborah, what do you have to say to our Beyond Belief audience who's watching this program right now, mm-hmm. going, "Wow." yeah well they're here helping us and um like i said we have beautiful star family and they don't interfere unless we ask and one important thing i want to say is they have been helping us so they said they're going to make sure that we do not blow up this planet like another planet in our in our solar system they stop the nuclear weapons they they dismantle them right they do that. I've been talking about that for They've a long time. Before. Yes, and there is a uh, they, were, they were making sure that we don't blow ourselves up like a planet in our solar system called Meldek, which is our asteroid belt between <laughs> Mars, Mars and Jupiter. And Jupiter. Exactly. Go. They said we're making sure you that you guys don't do that. And yeah. uh, otherwise, they cannot interfere. They have actually helped clean up the planet too of the pollution. They said in the sixties. It was such bad pollution. It was killing the planet that they actually came and helped to clean it up. Otherwise, it would have been a dead planet. So they do get involved. Yeah, only if they have to, but they don't want to interrupt. Only to make sure that we we don't destroy ourselves. How do people track you down? Thunderbeat.com. 
Thunderbeat, B-E-A-T, Thunderbeat.com. Deborah, thank you for being on the program. Thank you, George. Fascinating discussion. Thank you. Thanks for watching Beyond Belief. That was worth it, Rama. Thank you. Okay. And we had a little conversation about what music we're going to play. I was going to play, go to the Belmont Choir, but... um, we played this before, but it's been a long time, and we're going to play it now. And it's from last year. It was Celtic Women Postcards from uh, Ireland, of course. So let's do this. Ready? Mm. Okay. Music. Mm. Absolutely wonderful. Um, okay, turning it up. This program was made possible in part by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. since I saw you last. Almost two years have passed since that wild farewell back home. I can still hear Dad singing Danny Boy at the top of his lungs. I miss you folks so much and long to tell you all about my adventures face to face. But for now, let me tell you, you were right about Ireland. There's music everywhere here. It's in the trees and the rivers, in the wind and the rain. It rolls in on Atlantic waves. Boy, I wish you could hear it. Wish you were here. Isn't that what they say in postcards? But I know we'll all be together again someday soon. As sure as the sun rises. Always, your loving son, Sean. you guys sitting under it as kids. How strange to imagine all the things that old oak must have seen. So many lifetimes, yet still it stands. It reminds me of that song you used to sing us, Mom. Bonnie Portmore, was it? How did that go? A visit to Ireland is on the menu, everyone.
It is. Okay, I want to share just a couple of little things. And then Rama's got some good stuff, and our sister Rainbird will surely have some good words for us. This is called, Can Buddhists Celebrate Christmas? Our brother David Nietzsche has something to say, especially those of us living in the West. I'm going to bring this forward so you can make sure to hear better here. Yes. Of course we can. What is an un-Buddhist? What is un-Buddhist about peace and goodwill to all men? About practicing generosity? and showing kindness to family, to friends, and strangers. All of these are in perfect accord with Buddhism. And it is wonderful to have a culturally agreed season during which special emphasis is placed on these activities. For Christians, the birth of Jesus holds a particular religious significance. And even here, Buddhists can, a little bit of an echo there, Buddhists can offer our support. In Buddhism, we have many different lineages. There are the major Zen, Theravadin, Theravadin, Chinese, and Nisharan, Shoshu. To name only a few. And then within Tibetan Buddhism, each of the four branches Gulebha, Kagyu, Sakya, and Nyingma have many lineages which we can regard as being like many different branches of family trees. We may know very little about what goes on, even in closely related branches of our own family tree, let alone others. We may engage in different practices and rituals, and rituals. yet what unites us is far greater than what divides us. As we meet a fellow practitioner, even from a different part of the tree, we feel a sense of kinship. The same with Christianity. As we read what Jesus actually said, according to the biblical tradition, we might find nothing that contradicts the teachings of Buddha. The essence of his message Love and compassion. Focus on inner development, not material trappings. Lift your sights beyond this life alone. Are the same fundamental teachings that we have in Buddhism. In fact, there are those who say that Jesus was a Lama and that the three wise men from the East who appeared at his birth, were Buddhists 
from India mm. traveling traveling to check up on where he had been reincarnated. Those interested in exploring this subject further may like to read Jesus Lived in India by Halger Kirsten. That's K-E-R-S-T-E-N. An intriguing book. I'll put that on the Christmas list. Okay. And this is from our sister, Grandma Chandra. Whatever uh, grip the old energies had is being disconnected and fading away. There is nothing more allowing old energies to move forward with their plans. Your movement forward is happening so fast. There is no ability to hold space for the lower energies. December 10th through 12th. That's, well, we're already in the 11th. <laughs> uh, 2022 will be the final disconnection or dissolving of the dark energies. Wow. Because of all the higher energies of truth, the ability to use lies to cover up what is really happening will no longer work because there is no foundation for these lies. All all the old stories will open up and be revealed. There will be no forward path for them. Nothing can hold them in the new reality that would continue allowing these stories to go forward. They have no more inertia and have exhausted everything because of this. Your work through your heart will become easier and easier every day because there will be no more resistance. There will be no no more matter opposing this work. You no longer have to spend time on resistance. As a result, you can utilize all of your energy for your creativity or your creations. Hugs and love to all of you, Grandma. All right. Now it's your turn, Rainbow. To all good things, we continue and move forward. And with the angels and the fairies and the feathers and the rainbows, we've got them all here and then some. Ireland is with us. <laughs> and and the Emerald Serpent Feather one as well. And so I pass this talking stick with all of the above and any little people that you can think of that I missed. Here it comes. Merry Christmas. Uh, oh, Merry Christmas. I'll take that talking stick. Thank you. And yes, yes, yes. So what a, what a fun day. Just really lots of good stuff and so enjoyable. And the 
music is great, as it always is, this time of year. Thank you for sharing the Celtic women with us. And your anniversary is tomorrow, then? If today is the 11th? <laughs> so happy anniversary. No, wait a minute. Uh, yeah, we're on the 11th. That's right, because it's after midnight. Not necessarily if you live on the West Coast, though. <laughs> yeah, but you don't. I mean, the, you live in mountain time. It's, at, it's after 12 there, too. Yes. Yeah, oh, it's, it's tomorrow. <laughs> so it's tomorrow, and that means Monday when we yeah, say Exactly. Monday, and this Monday. being Sunday. Monday, yeah. Monday, la, 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 la. 12, 12, 12, 12, 22. That's a nice number. It's a three, three, and a six. It is. Mm -hmm. So much love every, every moment now. And we're, uh, as they might say, we're aging backwards. <laughs> yeah, that's called using. That's called what? Using. Using. Yes, 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 yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, so we are using. And absolutely, and we're immortal, and we're just being born right now. I mean, <laughs> we're in the birth canal. The Sarah now, I pass this talking stick over to you, Rama. Here it comes. Okay. Are you ready, sweetheart? Yeah, I got one song. You have a song? Yes. Just a song? Yeah. Okay, we're going to enjoy the song, and I'm sure you've got something we'll all enjoy, Rama. Yes. You are just going to let us guess, right? Yes. <laughs> okay, here we go, everybody. Across the sea. 
to the west that's us here thank you Ma. haven't played that for a while Ooh. so December 12 2022 that's 12 and 12 is um, 24 plus 6 is 30 it's a 3 three-day um, so um, we get to be creative very creative with what we're going to do with this new heaven and this new earth here and now so consult your fairies we all got some <laughs> we do inshallah everyone Satnam. Satnam D. 13 thank yous. Honey in the heart. No evil. Live long and prosper. Only love. Namaste, everyone. Aloha and mahalo nui loa. Melakaliki maka. That's Merry Christmas. And I'll have to figure out how to say Happy New Year when I get there. Namaste, everyone. So much love.